Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What's going on, you guys? It is almost the end of July, and that means we are officially one week away from the release of the second edition of the Carnivore Code. If you follow me on Instagram or anywhere, you know that I am steak dancing with super giddy excitement about this. Do not miss out on this one. I am so stoked to share this with the world, to share these ideas in a much broader perspective, a much broader theater, and help a whole lot of people who need to hear these tools because there are a lot of people who are still suffering autoimmunity and inflammation and psychiatric illness and GI issues. And really the idea that meat is central to the human diet, that we evolved with it and that plants can harm some of us is really crucial to get out there. So thank you for supporting this message. If you want to go pre-order the book, I will send you a link to a private video on YouTube about how to start a carnivore diet and an invite to a private Q&A with me after the book releases on August the 4th. The private video on YouTube you can get right when you order the book. I'll send you a form to do that. So you can go to thecarnivorecodebook.com to pre-order this week. Thank you so much for your continued support. I really think we are going to blow the doors off this one. It's going to be a huge release. We've got so many great podcasts that I've recorded and some really, really exciting ones that I am going on later in August. Stay tuned for lots of information about that. But thank you for your support. Check out my book, pre-order it, thecarnivorecodebook.com, ebook, print, audio. I love you all. I'll be doing some more signed book giveaways this week on Instagram. Stay tuned for that. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. It's how we spread the word. If you want to be one of my insiders, if you want to get my newsletter every Sunday, then sign up on my website, carnivoremd.com. I sent one out. Today, because I'm recording this on Sunday, though the podcast comes out on Tuesday. And if you subscribe to this newsletter, there will be a newsletter coming out on Tuesday this week that will have some very exciting announcements. I've been hinting at this amazing project that I am super passionate about for weeks, and insiders who subscribe to the Fundamental Health Insider will hear about it first. They heard about it today on Tuesday. So check that out at carnivoremd.com. And I will be talking a lot about this other exciting announcement very soon. Stay tuned, you guys. This is an amazing podcast. Let's just say it. This two plus hours with Tommy Wood is some of the most exciting conversation that I've ever had. I believe we get into coronavirus, metabolic health. Coronavirus continues to be something that we all have to think about. But we talk about the importance of metabolic health metabolo-endocrine connections, the connection between metabolic health and the immune system. Really interesting conversation there. Then we segue into talking about insulin resistance, what causes it at a biochemical level. It's a very technical conversation, but it's something I've spoken about in the past on my social media, and there is a video that goes with this on YouTube if you want to see the articles we are talking about. Then we transition to talking about fructose, which is something there's a lot of fructophobia about, 
and we drop some knowledge there as well. So this podcast, I think, answers many of the questions lots of people have been asking me, and we'll begin to get into these molecular mechanisms of insulin resistance. I so appreciate Tommy for doing this. Go follow him. Tell him what's up. Tell him you appreciate the work he's doing. He's a super smart dude. Thank you also to my sponsors. Got to give a shout out to Nutrisense. I love these guys, Nutrisense.io to sign up for a continuous glucose monitor. These folks are rad. You can listen to the continuous glucose monitor podcast if you want to hear all about what is happening with my glucose as I've begun re-including honey in my diet. I did not get insulin resistant. I did not. You can see it there. It's very clear. But I've got my dad getting a CGM, and I think that these are crucial for helping people make behavioral change because they can see the way their blood sugar is changing in response to foods they eat in real time. Check out Nutrisense.io. Get one for two weeks. It's direct to consumer. You don't need a prescription. This will change your life or someone else's super valuable information. Also want to give a shout out to my friends at Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com, Blue Blocks. They are simply the best blue blocking glasses I have ever found. They are super high quality. I love my Jaspers. These are my hipster glasses. Sometimes I have regular prescription glasses on and sometimes I have my blue blocks. If I'm going out at night to a restaurant, going to be in bright light, I will throw on my clear lenses. Nobody can tell I'm even wearing blue blocking glasses. I look cool. I look studious. And they are affecting the light coming into my retina, coming into the back of my eyes, which affects my circadian rhythms in a positive way. They've also got the super orange lenses. If you want to block all the the blue light and you want to look like Elton John, these are very cool as well. I like the Jasper. Go check them out. They've also got this amazing sleep mask, which I've affectionately called the bug eye mask. It's good for your Halloween costume. And it's really the best sort of light blocking mask I've found for nighttime. So check out blue blocks for blue blocking glasses and the bug mask, the eye mask for sleep because you need a dark room. And if your room isn't dark, you should be wearing a sleep mask to protect that circadian rhythm while you are sleeping. You can use the code CarnivoreMD for 15% off. My friends at White Oak Pastures always have my love and appreciation. WhiteOakPastures.com. They are amazing farmers and farmettes. Is that a word? Farmettes? Farmers and farmettes. Amazing men and women down there, Will Harris, his daughter Jenny, the whole family, sixth generation, 150 years in the family, last 20 plus years regenerative. I talk about this with Rob Wolf and Diana Rogers. I talk about it in my book, The Carnivore Code. Regenerative agriculture is simply the way that we preserve the land for future generations by creating diverse ecosystems, and it is how we create the best food for ourselves and our families. I just got an email this morning from someone that said, thanks for introducing me to White Oak Pastures. I had the best steak of my life. I'm not kidding you. This is a real email I got this morning. So check out White Oak Pastures. They have a loyalty program going on now. They sent me some stuff from the loyalty program, which I love. I am officially a mayor of Bluffton, Georgia, and I got a cutting board. I got a knife. I got a hat and a shirt, which I will feature soon on my Instagram. It says mayor of Bluffton, Georgia. I believe what they are doing here is uh, prioritizing the food for people in the case of food shortage or in the case of total collapse of food systems. Those who support White Oak Pastures with one of these levels of um, sort of patronage will be able to get this meat and good food all the time. So it's really, it's a double way to support them. 
you can ensure that your family will always have access to the best food out there. And White Oak will be able to produce this for everyone that we know and care about in general. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD for 10% off your first order. Give them a call. Say hi to Sarah. Say hi to Jenny. Let them know you love them because these guys are doing the good work. I love them deeply. Another company doing amazing work is Force of Nature. You guys know that I mentioned them in my book. They are actually based in Texas, and they are another company doing regenerative agriculture. They have ground beef, ground bison, elk, deer, all kinds of amazing stuff. They have organ grinds. You can check them out at forceofnature.com. They're connected with a ranch here in Texas called Rome Ranch. They've got this buffalo source. It's amazing. Some really, really good stuff. I had the ground elk. It was delicious. And their ground meats are very, very affordable. Oftentimes people will say, oh, I can't eat carnivore. It's too expensive. Well, if you go to White Oak Pastures and use my code, you can get stew meat for less than $10 a pound. You can get ground beef, ground bison, organ grinds for less than 10 or about $10 a pound from Force of Nature. And they are also supporting this regenerative agriculture movement, which is so important. So check out White Oak Pastures, check out Force of Nature, check out Nutrisense.io, and check out Blue Blocks. I think these companies are all doing good work, and I appreciate their support to bring this message to you. Also, please check out my book, thecarnivorecode.com, thecarnivorecodebook.com to pre-order. Without further ado, on to the podcast, my friends. I love you all. Hollywood, thanks for coming on the podcast. You and I have been talking for no less than half an hour before the podcast. <laughs> <And it's> just, <laughs> at some point, we have to press record. It's good to have you on again. Oh, it's great to be back. And just so people know, um, I have to take a mulligan here. Tommy and I are now two podcasts deep in, in the bank. And so this is the second in a series of podcasts I've done with Tommy that I have not released on insulin resistance. I think I might release these in sequence, but this one may end up being the first one. And then the, the other one that we did on insulin resistance may end up being one to follow this. This one will be the first because we're going to get into some of this COVID stuff to start and tie it all in. But this is going to be part of a two-part series, which will be uh, the beginning of what will hopefully be a long series, if Tommy will <laughs> indulge me, into <laughs> insulin resistance and into metabolic health. And in this day and age, uh, today is July the 15th, 16th? 16th. 16th, 2020. This is a very relevant issue. So with that said, we'll dive in. So I want to start with coronavirus, Tommy. Let's just get some of your, your overarching thoughts about this as he takes a deep breath, and then we'll get into an article that you wrote recently, which I think is really fantastic. So where are we? How do you see it, the situation right now with coronavirus? Sure. So, so my, my main overarching thought about SARS-CoV-2 and, and COVID-19 is that for the first time, the general public have seen science happening in real time. And what they didn't realize before now was that when you're participating in the scientific process, you are getting stuff wrong all the time, like literally all the time. Like you have hypotheses, you test them, they were wrong. Um, and when you're putting them in preprints, when people are desperate for ideas and answers immediately, things that just aren't settled things that we don't understand, um, they are, they're put out there and they're debated. And what happens is as we learn, people go, oh, but these guys were wrong before, so why should we trust them now? Well, like literally that's, 
like every scientist, any good scientist has been wrong the majority of their lives. And then we slowly iterate and we figure out the answer. So I don't understand how people can can be so angry about scientists being well, I guess I do understand because they've never seen they've never seen this process in action before. But like if you're a scientist, you are wrong most of the time. And the unfortunate case of this like very new thing happening is that we have to try and make decisions on incomplete and um, poorly understood data at the, in, in real time. And so I think that's where a lot of the, the sort of the confusions and problems over time and the different, like the messaging hasn't always been great. Um, and it's been confusing, particularly if you compare what was said three months ago to what's being said now. Um, and it's it's not that people don't know what they're doing. It's just we're, we're iterating and figuring this stuff out in, in real time. So I think that's where a, a lot of the, the sort of the confusion and arguments are coming from. Yeah. Okay. Totally true. And you and I have talked a lot about science in general and broader ideas of how it's important to be open-minded and not dogmatic in our thinking. You know that over the time that we've known each other, my thinking has changed on a number of things, Mm -hmm. often because of things that you've shown me or taught me and things that I've learned. And I, I just, I think that as, I don't know if I could call myself a scientist anymore, who knows, a doctor, I, you know, perhaps an aspiring scientist, but when people ask me at parties what I do, I mostly just say I'm a writer these days. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's anyone who's read my work and followed my stuff will know that, that ideas are changing and evolving. And I think that the only thing I'll add to that is that it needs to be okay for us to offer a hypothesis and then to say that hypothesis was wrong as people who are contributing in medicine and science. And we should not vilify people for offering ideas that are against the status quo even if they turn out to be wrong, because we're trying to iterate together and and push the ideas to a better place. And so, as you said, most people are wrong the majority of the time. And there are tons of classic anecdotes of this, you know, Einstein or Tesla or whoever, how many things they got wrong before they got it right? How many Edison, you know, how many iterations Edison went through with a light bulb? And yet, there's no tolerance for this today when someone says, I think this, and then they say, oh, actually, I was wrong about that. People say, oh, you were wrong about one thing. You're worthless. They cast you aside. Anyway, crazy times. Yeah, so, so, so I absolutely agree with that um, in theory. The, the, the one, you know, and, and I don't, I'm not somebody to, to generally go for appeals to authority because often I disagree with authority. Um, but there has definitely been, in my opinion, there has been too much of people throwing out hypotheses based on an incomplete understanding of incomplete data. And so the position they're coming from is even worse than the position the scientists are coming from in terms of their, you know, the, what they have access to, what they understand about the data. Um, and, and we've talked about this previously, right? When, when people are looking at real-time WHO or CDC mortality data, that stuff takes weeks for it to be in, in date. And so there was, you know, all this stuff that, that basically, you know, you know, talking about, you know, the, the, the death numbers don't add up and stuff. And, you know, but the CDC data isn't put on the website so that people with no understanding of epidemiology can just make up stuff about it. Um, and it's just, it takes a long time for that stuff to be up to date. And it's there so that we can understand what happened in two years time, not so we can understand, understand it in real time. Um, so there's just a little bit too much of people seeing stuff and thinking that they have a useful hypothesis or theory to add. And, you know, I'm not sure that's helpful, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Now, here we are, July 2020. Let's just share our opinions of where things are. And these are just 
ideas if you're willing to. You and I have had some conversation about this offline. Mm. You know, people will know if they listen to my stuff that that my perspective is that the idea of flattening the curve is to not overwhelm the healthcare system. And I've failed to understand throughout the coronavirus pandemic why people persist in advancing the notion that lockdowns will somehow eradicate the virus or change the absolute number of people who are exposed to the virus. Now, that's just the way that I've seen it throughout it. And I would love to get your perspective on that um, as well, because we find ourselves at this point in our history in July of 2020, looking at lockdowns again, as there's a quote, second wave or it's the continuation of the first wave and there are continued discussions of herd immunity, which is really the H word these days. And it's very controversial. And when I talk about herd immunity on my social media and stuff, I'm just thinking, hey, look, from my perspective, most of us are going to get exposed to this. It's not a matter of if you get exposed, it's a matter of when, because this is a respiratory virus with a large or not, uh, with a large you know, ability to be transmitted between humans. And it's, it's not about hiding from the virus. It's just the fact that most of us at this stage are probably going to be exposed. And for me, that means the messaging is severely lacking in that there's no consideration of metabolic health, which is what the article you wrote uh, is about and where we're going to go next. But it's just frustrating for me that, that, that it seems like the most messaging is about just hide from the virus, hide from the virus until we get a vaccine. And no one is talking about metabolic health. I don't think any people are realizing that they're probably going to get exposed regardless, and you really cannot hide from a virus like this. But I would love for you to weigh in on this if you have different or similar opinions, just so we can kind of, you know, share with people where they think we're at at this point in history. So I think at one point there was a possibility that you could avoid um, or completely eliminate the spread of the virus with lockdowns, and, and, I, and there are still countries, uh, South Korea, Singapore. Um, that it, they've done a good job of this. And I would say that they've actually almost, you know, internally managed to er er eradicate the virus. So that was a possibility. Right now, of countries in uh, the Western world, industrialized countries, um, or, you know, in that group, um, just the US has completely dropped the ball on that idea. Just like, it's just, there's, there's no chance now. I think at one point there was a chance. Um, and, and it could have worked, and other countries have shown that it could have worked. Right now, if you look at um, the the way cases are increasing across the US, I mean, it's just completely different from every other country that's that's, that's actually managed to get this under control. So, so you're right. At this point, I think it's too late. Everybody's going to get exposed at some point. Um, and the idea of lockdown, or you know, uh, social and, and social distancing, was to prevent or was to slow the spread to 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 make sure the hospital systems don't get overwhelmed like they were in New York, like they are now starting to be in some parts of California, Texas, and Florida, again. Um, and I think you know, in reality, so in reality, all we can do is try and is try and keep that slow that down so that your local hospital system doesn't get overwhelmed, which will result in the rationing of care um, and also uh, an increase in inequities in, in, in healthcare um, access and, um, and availability. Um, so, so, I, so I guess technically now I agree with you. I wouldn't have agreed with you like four or five months ago when I thought it was a possibility that we could have slowed this in the US because of various things. It's just, I, I don't think there's any chance really anymore. Um, but that doesn't mean that these these things aren't important because it, it is still going to come down to how well your local hospital system can can deal with it. Um, when you think about um, so things like 
metabolic health. Again, you know, I, I very much agree that it is a big part um, of susceptibility for multiple reasons that we can get into. But I also think, so the, the, the problem with, with this messaging that's come up is that when, when people start to talk about it, then others um, want to talk about the reasons why some of these um, discrepancies exist. And again, a lot of it comes down to um, inequities in terms of access to healthcare and uh, qualities of environment. And a lot of that comes down to housing, systemic racism. Um, you know, if you look at housing policies over the last few decades and who lives where, which which is basically a result of systemic racism, then those um, people, then say people of um, people of color, are more likely to be exposed to large amounts of air pollution, um, environmental toxicants, which it, which increase uh, you know risk of metabolic disease. So there are all these things that are then placed on these people who then also have more likely to have um, inequitable access to healthcare, which then increases their, their later risk. So when we talk about metabolic health and susceptibility to these diseases, we have to um, accept and understand that a lot of this is not in people's control. So you and I, middle-class white guys with great education it's very easy for you and me to decide what we're exposed to what we eat the healthcare we get um who we interact with um we can work from home not everybody gets those choices um not everybody has not everybody is privileged enough to do that and so it is a very nuanced conversation um yes we can talk about what those differences in metabolic health uh result like result in immunologically the why it increases risk but, you, but the, the people who are really at increased risk don't necessarily get the choices that we have. They're not privileged enough to change, you know, to, to really sort of change the way they eat and the way they work and what they're exposed to. Um, and so, so I think that has to be an important part of the conversation as well. And those conversations go very deep into sort of socio-political norms and, and government subsidies for certain types of food. And I mean, I just posted yesterday on my Instagram, you know, there are coronavirus testing centers at Target and on the same banner is an advertisement for Pepsi. And in Louisiana, they're giving out coupons for Happy Meals at McDonald's if you come to get tested. So there are a lot of questions here. I saw in the UK, uh, Boris Johnson recently uh, changed uh, something. He's banning the two-for-one sale of junk food. Did you see this? I didn't see that, but he's... but. Um he's become more invested in this after he had to get treated himself as severe COVID-19 and he's not in great, you know, com compared to where he might like to be, he's not in great health. I thought it was pretty cool though, that, that that was a possibility. And I don't think we'll go deeply into those socio-political conversations today. I'd rather keep it in the scientific field, but, but I do think that there are larger themes at work here, government subsidies for corn and soy and why it's hard to access real food. And, as we'll get into why certain foods, specifically polyunsaturated vegetable oils or lower quality foods are pervasive in the healthcare, in, in the food system and how that might be contributing mm -hmm. to overall problems. But I, I, lo I love what you said there. And I think that, that that's a good point to just emphasize before we move on to the next part of this about metabolic health, which is that I, I think you're right, that, that there are some countries that appear to have had a much different uh, course with coronavirus than the U.S. and um, perhaps in the very beginning, and, and maybe we didn't even 
know about it. You know, maybe, maybe we botched it from the beginning. It's kind of like this, this thing that just explodes, right? And we, we would have had to be much stricter about it much earlier. And if you don't get it in the very beginning, it doesn't even matter because the virus has already moved through population enough. And as you're saying, and this is kind of what I was talking about with Ivor on previous podcasts, unless you get it very, very early, once the virus is sort of out, it's spreading to the population, you might not actually be able to control it. And so at this point, you know, I think that as always, despite what we've said here about how hard it is for people to make these changes, I wish more of the message were, hey, your metabolic health is the biggest factor. What do we need to do to change these things? Because I think the genie, quote unquote, you know, the demon is out of the bottle in many countries now and is not going back in, no matter what we do. Yeah, I think um, we just have to accept that now we're in it. Now we're playing a slightly different game because we we dropped the ball in, 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 the, in the first place. And and yeah, and we'll talk about more about metabolic health. But I just want to make it clear up front that it's it's very easy for some people to talk about that when the people who it really affects um, probably don't you know don't have the the privilege that we do to to really think about those things. Right. And so then, you know, maybe that's the last, maybe we can bring it back full circle at the end of this conversation and think about how we need to change that. But for now, let's, let's dive into to some of the stuff that you've written, which is really cool uh, as a start to this sort of the scientific side of this podcast, which will be deep and long. But so here's uh, an article that, that Tommy wrote an editorial from May and let's just go through it. And I think I would love to highlight some of the stuff here. Uh, let's just start I mean, we can just highlight these things, but as you note here, um, the title of the article is The Metabolic Health and Lifestyle Medicine Should Be a Cornerstone of Future Pandemic Preparedness. Uh, again, Tommy's a co-author of the study, and as you note in the beginning, the co- many of the comorbidities associated with metabolic unhealth appear to increase our risk of severe, severe outcomes with coronavirus. I think that's something I've talked about. I don't think we need to dwell on that in detail today, but as you say here, um, uh, in New York City, there was one study of 5,700 patients, and uh, 57, 42, and 34 had hypertension, obesity, and diabetes, respectively. It's it's a it's a it's very. Would you agree that it's pretty well accepted and pretty well substantiated to say that these metabolic illnesses are predisposing us to more severe courses of coronavirus? I mean, right? Yeah, and and so th- you know, this was was mainly written. Um, back in April, uh, actually, and we we tried to keep it up to date um, just before it was it was finally uh, finally submitted. But you know, a lot's happened in the last two or three months. We've had a lot more data, and you know, it, the the same things pop up again, again and again. People who have uh, evidence of heart disease, types of diabetes, obesity, um, and then even those who don't necessarily have those. Um, you know, those sort of formally diagnosed comorbidities, if they have increased uh, uh, glycemic variability or elevated fasting blood glucose, those are associated with with, um, with more severe outcomes um, or more severe disease as well. So, um, and then obviously there's the, the age factor and, you know, the risk increases as people get older. And there's now two or three groups who have expertise in calculating biological age, um, who show that um, if you have a discrepancy between your biological and your chronological age, or you are older biologically, that also disproportionately increases your risk. So, you know, all of this kind of ties together uh, with you know the 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 state of your the state of your physiology um, 
uh, associated with with um, metabolic disease. Do you want to share some of those studies? I know you had some of them pulled up with the biological age. Are they looking at uh, methylation of CPG islands? Is this like a, a Horvath or? Yeah. Uh, so um, did I did I close that? Oh no, it's so different. It's here. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's that, that, that's a, a good question. But so this is based on so Morgan Levine um, is kind of one of the the real stars of the biological age world. She did her PhD with Steve Horvath, and her version of um, the methylone, the epigenome, in terms of um, measuring biological age is probably like the current gold standard. But she also has phenoage, which is based on common blood markers. Um, and actually, the equation exists in her in her papers. You can do do your blood tests and calculate your own, which is which is nice. And it's actually it's almost as it's almost as good as as doing a fancy methylation test. Um, so this was based on her phenoage using um, using blood biomarkers. And it, so again, this is a preprint. It's not been peer reviewed yet. Uh, it just came out of, uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, yeah, eleventh of July. Um, but they basically using phenoage in the UK Biobank study. They then look at biological age and and severity of COVID nineteen. Um, and you can you can kind of look at you can sort of show the biomarkers here that that they looked at. Um, can zoom in a bit. But here, so you have albumin, creatinine, glucose, CRP, uh, percentage of lymphocytes, MCV, RDW, ALP, and uh, white blood white blood cell count. Um, and uh, they basically show that your the higher your biological age, the 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 greater your risk for for severe COVID nineteen. Right, and you and I have talked about RDW on a previous podcast. For those who are not familiar with Tommy Wood, this is the fourth podcast that we have done together. I believe in the first podcast we talked about RDW, but looking at those metrics, uh, presumably, I guess people can maybe I'll link to the paper and we can actually find how to calculate that phenoage. age. Those are markers yeah. that most people can get. Yeah. The albumin, the fasting glucose, the the CRP, the RDW, the lymphocytes. We're going to talk about lymphocytes uh, in a moment here, uh, having to do with immunometabolism. But it, it is interesting that that these that there's a real clear there's a real clear predisposition of those who have metabolic illness, which we know is also associated with a greater biological age and worse COVID outcomes. And so, from the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, it's been it's been frustrating for me and saddening that this hasn't been a bigger part of the conversation. And um, I've been talking about it repeatedly and I wish it had been more of the conversation, which is why things like coupons for free McDonald's happy meals or advertising Pepsi uh, alongside a COVID testing site make not a lot of sense uh, in, in the grand scheme of things to kind of miss the, the, the underlying thing here, the underlying idea, which is that, Hey, your ability to fight infections, and we'll get into this, is directly based on your metabolic health. So, and we've seen this. Well, before. yeah, so that, that's true, of course. Um, but if in the short term, your desire is to better understand the spread of the virus, and you also understand what motivates your population, then you understand why they do it. Um, and I'm not saying, right? And so, so you can say, yes, you know, Long term, absolutely, completely agree. But if you're trying to leverage um, leverage how people respond in the population, you're trying to understand this virus. I understand why they do it. I'm not saying that it's the best way. To, you know, that, that yeah. maybe there are better ways. But I understand why it's done. I'm just, you know, that we just have to 
yeah, what's the short term versus the the long term goals and understanding here that has to be taken into account as well. I just think that we've been in this news cycle for 20 plus weeks now. <laughs> it's becoming long term, right? In the beginning, short term, but I mean, we know we can improve metabolic health pretty quickly with some of these changes and we've had plenty of time to improve people's metabolic health over this time period. So it's, it's now becoming long-term. And so I just wish it were more a part of it. The yeah. messaging. <laughs> he's, he's not sure he agrees. No, it's just, it's, it's just difficult. I think that's the, 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 the problem is that when, uh, you know, talking heads of which I include both you and I, uh, come come online and, and and talk about these things. You know, we haven't had to make these decisions. We haven't had to try and figure out like how are we going to get enough people tested so we really understand the natural uh, the natural course of the disease. Um, and you know, maybe we would have had had different and better ideas if we were actually in that position. Um, but we're not, so we just have to we just have to accept that, right? Yeah, we just have to accept it, and here we are. So, and then I mean. You and I have talked about this also, and I think the the long term perspective here is not it should not be ignored either. I mean, whether or not we protect, as you say, I mean, the whole title of really um, really emphasizes this: metabolic health and lifestyle medicine should be a cornerstone of future pandemic preparedness, regardless of how we address this coronavirus pandemic. If if we miss this opportunity to think about metabolic health and what is making us as a culture metabolically unhealthy, we will be just as susceptible to the next pandemic. And so, yes, there may be short-term and long-term strategies, but I think that it's not just about coronavirus, just like, because as many have cited, more people will die, you know, over the next year, two years from heart disease, stroke, diabetes, these diseases of metabolic illness than coronavirus by far. And so there, there are bigger issues at play. And, and it isn't interesting, as you're pointing out in this article, that the same things that cause those diseases, those chronic illnesses, also make us more susceptible to coronavirus. So I think you're right. There is a short game and a long game here. And um, I just don't think anyone's really playing the long game at all. Um, we just keep playing the short game. Yeah. And, and so what, what we have, or some of the articles we cite, in the in the editorial include data from SARS, MERS, uh, H1N1. Um, so basically, it, you know, any common um, serious viral infection that has had pandemic potential, even though not all of them reached, you know, you know, created worldwide pandemics. Um, your susceptibility to those, um, in terms of the severity of illness, was is is driven by the same factors, um, and I. I'm fairly confident that there will be at least one more, if not many more, significant global viral pandemics in my lifetime. The really serious ones are more, it's more likely to be flu that's going to kill, a strain of flu that's going to kill, you know, potentially, you know, millions of people. Uh, But again, you know, metabolic uh, health uh, does, does come into play here. So when we talk about lifestyle medicine, um, you know, it's the idea that, uh, sleep, stress, social connection, diet, movement, all those things basically govern your long-term health. The vast majority of it, 80, 90%. Um, and there has to, I think there has to be both a top-down and a, and a bottom-up approach. So, so people who have um, the, the resources 
to do so can can make these changes themselves directly and then you know that, but that's not the case for everybody like we talked about so then you need a, 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 a some kind of top-down approach you need this to be baked into standard healthcare you need these things to be available to people and you know i would argue as part of a socialized healthcare system because that's <laughs> what i believe in um and so that's so you know this article so the the journal that is published in the uh, new lifestyle medicine journal is is the official journal of the british society of lifestyle medicine it definitely has a british bent um and so i'm actually more hopeful that this will be implemented in britain than it would be say in in the us uh, because there's a socialized healthcare system where that could become part of it and there's a big um, there's a big movement of, of lifestyle medicine in, in, in Britain, which is much more um, holistic and balanced, say, than the lifestyle medicine in the US, which is full of plant-based loonies. <laughs> I, I would have to agree with you, which is why I do what I do, because I fear, I fear that those ideas, those plant-based ideas are harming people and um, are not based on uh, the truest uh, information that we have. So anyway. Well, so, so I, so I, you know, after saying that, I will say that um, a lot of people have benefits from low-fat plant-based diets. I can't deny that, right? There is evidence to support them. I'm just saying there are a lot of other ways to skin that cat, some of which may be even better. And there's lots of other things that are important as well other than just diet. So that, that's why, you know, being and 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 again, we we say this in the article, right? There are there are multiple we list multiple different ways that you can improve metabolic health dietarily. Very low calorie um, diets like uh, Roy Taylor's used to reverse type diabetes. Whole food plant based diets like the Broad Study do a dramatic effect on obesity, mainly because they taught people how to cook whole foods. In my opinion, um, ketogenic diets, right? All of those are there. And I say, you know, if you're trying to improve metabolic health, I would rather you improve metabolic health, and I don't care really how you get there. Um, you know, I, I have no ideological, uh, or I don't think anybody should say ideologically, I have the best diet because nobody does, right? It's going to require us. And, and also you don't know what the patient prefers. And that's also like adherence is going to be more important than, than having some ideologically perfect diet. So I think, you know, I, I want people to use all of these tools as necessary, depending on the person in front of them. I think that's totally reasonable. If people are interested in plant-based diets, I recommend they listen to the podcast I did with John Venus from a couple of weeks ago. I, in that podcast, uh, I reviewed a, a number, a few of the main plant-based studies that are used to substantiate that diet as an intervention for diabetes primarily were the endpoints they were looking at. And one of the things you notice from those studies is most of them are hypocaloric. Most of them do restrict calories and all of them are low-fat vegan or low-fat vegetarian diets, which restrict polyunsaturated fatty acids. Mm -hmm. So the problem I have with the notion or the conclusion from those studies, which is generally that animal foods are harmful for humans, is that that's a generalization. They're changing seven variables. You can't yeah. say which of those is actually the, the effective variable. And as I point out in that podcast, there are multiple interventional trials that include meat in the diet and see similar improvements in outcomes with diabetes or weight loss or inflammation or metabolic health. So to say that just because a plant-based study works doesn't mean that meat is bad for humans. And, oh yeah, of course. I yeah. completely agree. Yeah. And as Tommy is suggesting, and just so people know, full disclosure, I eat meat. 
I wrote that book right there, The Carnivore Code, Tommy Eats Me. Tommy might have done a carnivore diet at some point in the past. I cannot uh-huh. confirm or deny that. I think we've had conversations about that. Maybe at the end of the podcast, you can talk to us about your experiences with a carnivore diet. Tommy is an omnivore, and I believe I'm characterizing him properly in that way at this moment. So, uh-huh. Absolutely. But I think that that's just, that's, that's the error of judgment that gets made with so many of these plant-based studies is they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I, I do think, uh, as I've said repeatedly, that animal foods uh, are, are really not harmful for humans. That's never been demonstrated uh, clearly in an interventional trial. And to exclude animal foods puts people in a little bit of a pickle uh, in terms of nutrient adequacy long-term. That's my perspective on it. So Yeah, and, and, and generally, I'd, I'd agree. Um, there are some people who do just fine, and, and that's great. But um, I think if you're trying to maximize um, various nutrients in the diet and you know, maybe some, avoid some, some ones that have the potential to be detrimental, um, I think you know, there's so much to say that uh, animal products are basically essential for the human diet. Yeah, yeah. So this next part of your article, I think, is, is one of the most interesting parts for me. Um, you say a major driver of morbidity and mortality in those at risk appears to be a dysregulated immune response characterized by lymphopenia and an associated cytokine storm. I think a lot of listeners may have heard uh, this, this idea of a cytokine storm uh, with COVID. And I, I'd love to dig into this because this idea of immunometabolism is something that you guys point out really well in this article. And I think it's quite fascinating to look at the way that our metabolic health affects our immune system. And this is really where these two ideas uh, intersect. And the idea that your metabolic health affects how well your immune system works. So why don't you walk us through this and I'll maybe pull up a couple of graphics to illustrate um, what the innate and adaptive immune system look like and maybe the difference between a TH1 and a TH2 response. Mm, Yeah. So broadly speaking, when you look at all these... um, when you look at all these like, um, comorbidities or factors associated with, with um, uh, worse uh, disease severity in COVID-19, um, metabolic disease, uh, you know, so obesity maybe if we're looking at it in, in animal studies, um, being male, uh, being older, all of them are associated with this uh, shift in the, immune, in the immune system where you have an upregulation of the innate immune system, which is sort of like the early, the early responder, um, and then uh, a decrease or a change in the adaptive immune system. Um, where so, so you get an increase in neutrophils and actually in a number of both metabolic diseases and in COVID-19, you see um, worse outcomes in those who have a high neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. It's, you, you, you can easily get it if you do a CVC with differential. Um, and neutrophils are part of the innate immune system. Lymphocytes are part of the adaptive immune system. And what happens is that part of the adaptive immune system, um, you, you see um, basically an upregulation of, of, of some inflammatory pathways like the NLRP3 inflammasome is part of the uh, adaptive immune system. And, and this, you know, uh, another, another uh, biomarker, um, Sorry, it's part of the innate immune system. Another biomarker that we've seen elevated in people with severe COVID-19 is, is LDH, which is an intracellular enzyme that gets released uh, when cells die, um, and usually through a process called pyroptosis, which is associated with the, the activation of LLRP3. Um, and, con- and conversely, the adaptive immune system, T cells working with B cells to make antibodies, um, 
that there's a shift in that from from a th1 to th2 and there's uh which is to do with the t helper cells that sort of regulate that system and it's an oversimplification but basically you see it you see a shift in the balance of th1 to th2 and and what this results in overall is an inadequate initial response to the infection so you should be able to get on top of it quickly activate the adaptive immune system generate antibodies and t-cell immunity and then the virus gets cleared and there is an increasing amount of evidence to suggest that some people actually may have um been exposed to other coronaviruses that then make them that give them T cell immunity, um, you know, because they they already they already have that their adaptive immune system has already learned that. And whether the the problem is that it's it's all been shown to work in in like in cell culture, but we haven't like exposed those people to to SARS CoV two and seen whether they get sick or not. So it's kind of again this is this is part of a, a developing uh, picture of 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 the the disease and our, and our ability to. Um, you know, adapt to it or, or deal with it. But anyway, so th- this picture gives you an inadequate initial response, um, and then the virus that allows the virus time to replicate. And then you get a much bit. Then once the the body figures it out, right, you get a, this huge secondary response. And, and you'll hear this t- time and time again that you know, I got sick. I started to feel better, and then all of a sudden, I got worse. And it's that worsening once the immune system finally kicks in. That's the that's associated with the cytokine storm. You know, this big sort of cell death um, over overactivation of the immune system. And this has been fairly nicely studied in some animal studies where they show the the, the same thing um, in, in response to other in, in response to other viruses. And and so this is what essentially is happening: is we have a dysregulated immune system, we have um, an inappropriate or inadequate initial response which then results in this much larger later response which is what is then associated with with worse outcomes because you know a lot of the time when we're getting you know sick with sepsis or something it's it's this huge response to the immune system that's that's the problem in terms of um uh pyrexia or um getting fevers and and the blood pressure dropping and all that stuff it's it's because of our the immune system's response to to the infection and so that's where a lot of these uh, problems start to come from so just to summarize for people like what you're saying here and correct me if i get any of this wrong it's it's that as i was showing here while you were speaking um the immune system has these two different sort of arms, these two different armies, and this is things that we both learned in medical school. You have a stem cell, you have this innate response and an adaptive response. And the innate response is, I've shown this graphic a number of times over the last few months, the innate response is monocytes, eosinophils, basophils, neutrophils, macrophages, dendritic cells. And the adaptive response is a lot of these lymphoid cells, T cells and B cells. And there can be a balance between this TH1, T helper 1, T helper two sort of physiology. Again, as you point out in the paper, this is an oversimplification, but there are certain sets of cytokines associated with T helper one versus T helper two response. And in the setting of uh, coronavirus, as you point out in the paper, we're seeing a decreased T helper one response versus T helper two, basically overall lymphopenia, meaning lower levels of uh, lymphocytes, lower levels of this adaptive immune response and this, um, this uh, innate immune response, which is sort of imbalanced. Um, here's an interesting paper that you 
reference in the article, the relationship between neutrophil lymphocyte ratio and insulin resistance in newly diagnosed type 2 diabetes mellitus patients. So this has nothing to do with coronavirus, but it shows, as you're pointing out, that this neutrophil, this is an innate immune cell, lymphocyte, this is an adaptive immune cell, ratio is different in those with diabetes. This is exactly what Tommy's saying, that the increased NLR, the increased neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, was significantly associated with insulin resistance, this metabolic dysfunction that Tommy and I are going to dig into in a moment. And high NLR values may be a reliable predictive marker of insulin resistance, metabolic dysfunction. And this neutrophil lymphocyte ratio is really an indication of some degree of immunologic disorder, you know, immun a disordered immunologic response, which can then lead to susceptibility to many of these viral or intracellular bacterial diseases. There's another paper that I flashed for a moment while Tommy was talking. You mentioned the NLRP3 inflammasome, which is uh, associated with the innate immune system. And as you said, leads to pyroptosis, which is this programmed cell death, uh, the cytokine storm. And uh, its relationship with metabolism is gaining uh, increased attention in this field. So basically, the idea here is that the NLRP3 inflammasome is involved in metabolic disorders and regulation of metabolic, regulated by metabolic pathways. Just all of these articles are sort of substantiating these ideas that um, Tommy is, is advancing here, which is that the immune system and our metabolism, that is our overall um, metabolic health uh, are intimately linked and that when we are metabolically disordered, the immune system doesn't function well. We're getting this cytokine storm. We're getting this in, innate immune response, which is um, sort of overactive and can lead to the cytokine storm and a very damaging, um, very damaging response and poor outcomes. Tommy talked about LDH, lactate dehydrogenase when cells are dying, but the, the ideas here are clear and what we are connecting is this, these, these two disparate, these two apparently disparate ideas around the immune system and how your metabolism functions. Did all that, did all that jive, Tommy? Did I say all that properly? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and, and where this really boils down to uh, basically is how oxidative stress alters um, the, the phenotype of immune cells. And the reason why that is important, so, so when, you, when you look at, uh, so, so say you mentioned macrophages as part of the uh, innate immune system, where immunometabolism has really dug in is macrophage and then their um, sort of the, the macrophage subset that we call microglia that are in, that are in the brain. Um, and immunometabolism basically looks at how um, mitochondrial function, particularly production of oxidative stress, Krebs cycle intermediates, when that shifts, that completely changes how these cells work. And so, that, so directly, a mitochondrial function and oxidative stress directly change how your, your immune cells work. And why this is important, I think, in, in, the, in the context of COVID-19 is that you're seeing in a lot of, of very healthy people, particularly um, like high-volume athletes, they're, you know, they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily need to be hospitalized, but they're getting these very long, protracted uh, disease courses with COVID-19. And it's not something that people are really talking about uh, because it doesn't fit the metabolic health picture, right? You're like, well, this this is a lean, healthy person. Why are they getting sick for so long periods of time? But if you look at uh, 
oxidative stress burden in high volume, particularly endurance athletes, you see it dramatically increases. So if you do some exercise, it, it improves oxidative, oxidative handling, right? It's a hormetic stressor. You get, you get an improved antioxidant um, system, but you can, you can overcome that if you're, a, if you're somebody who trains 20 hours a week. And in those people, you see very similar shifts in the immune system. And it all comes down to the amount of oxidative stress generated by the training that you're doing. So this, you know, what's nice about this idea is that you dig into it more. And so uh, Gummund Johansson, who's a, he's a, an ER physician in, in Iceland, who's, who's a good friend of mine, and he's the other author on this editorial, we spent a lot more time digging into this since we wrote it. You know, how, you know can we stress test this idea? Is there something, you know, a bigger picture here? thing here and when you look at the the effect of uh, overtraining or overreaching in athletes on the immune system you see exactly the same thing so this all seems to come back to oxidative stress so this idea basically explains i'm not going to say all of it but you know it explains people at both ends of the metabolic health spectrum um why they might be uh, uh increased uh, potentially at increased risk um so that's it's nice when when something like that pans out Right. And so ultimately it's boiling down to the way that the human body is sort of connecting metabolism, insulin sensitivity, oxidative stress with the immune response. And so just exactly. to show this picture again, Tommy's talking about macrophages specifically. They have an M1 and an M2 phenotype in the brain. These are called microglial cells, but they are a part of this innate immune system. And so I, I, I appreciate you mentioning that because I think that there are these confusing cases of these apparently very healthy athletes who have been affected severely, and this explains that as well. Mm -hmm. And the overarching idea here, I think, is not, is, not, is not totally counterintuitive. It's like, hey, if your body, if you are very metabolically sick, if you are eating the wrong foods, or if you are absolutely at, your, at the end of your body's ability to handle stress because you are an elite athlete and you are over-exercising, your immune system is going to be tanked and that is going to affect the way you deal with these things. I, I was mentioning to you on the phone when we talked previously that I've had a number of friends who are apparently pretty metabolically healthy, are not elite athletes, they're not over-exercising and they've, they've, they're you know, SARS-CoV-2, RT-PCR positive or antibody positive and have had very, very mild courses of the, of the illness. Fortunately, I haven't known anyone who's had a severe course, but they are out there. And I think that what we're just trying to understand here is who gets sick and who doesn't, rather than just creating this blanket fear in the population and, and giving us some sort of uh, leverage with which to approach this disease. Um, uh, the, 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 pro the problem is that then that um, if you think about, say, the, the U.S. population, oh, yeah. but there's a very small group of people who don't fit into one of those camps. Um, and that's, that's something that, that we have to sort of reckon with. Yeah. I mean, you and I have talked about that many times. I've talked about it on previous podcasts. If you look at the, the criteria for metabolic syndrome, you know, in, in the most recent data, whether it's NHANES or, you know, similarly 88% of people have, you know, some indicators of metabolic unhealth. And so there's a 12% of the population that's metabolically elite. The question is how do we expand that part of the population? How do we make that part of the population as, as broad, as pop, as big as possible, and, and what do we do for the rest? As you mentioned in, in your article, we, we have to, I think, create some sort of a, uh, a spectrum upon, of metabolic health and immunometabolic robustness upon which all people can be placed. And the idea, the goal, I think the reason we do what we do is we want to get as many more people into that elite club as possible. And, and how do we do that? 
this is our bottom up approach, you and I talking about it and educating and the top down approach I think is much more complicated. Um, I'll just highlight this part of your article, what you said here, um, this suggests that regardless of the virus type, taking steps to improve population metabolic and immune health will play a crucial role in reducing the impact of future pandemic. This is a part where you are talking about um, H1N1, uh, MERS and uh, SARS-CoV-1 also having an effect, uh, being affected by metabolic health and, um, and then talking about glycemic variability, specifically uh, worsening COVID-19 outcomes. That's something you and I talked about previously on this podcast. I've noted studies showing that previously in other podcasts. So I think that we're sort of left with this, this framework now of, of metabolic health and metabolic unhealth. And, and the, the athletes are a separate case, which we can discuss if we have time. Um, in the article, you also talk about some of these, um, these, uh, these sort of populations that are uh, what you call black, Asian, minority, ethnic populations, the BAME populations, uh, and, and how they are at a higher risk. We sort of touched on that a little bit earlier. Certainly those populations may not have access to as much outdoor space for lower vitamin D levels. They definitely have less access to food. And um, unfortunately, they have less access to sort of information that may change the way they're eating in a positive way. So that that is, as you point out, a, a disadvantage for those populations. But let's now shift, unless there's anything else you'd like to say or summarize that article, I would love to shift into some discussion of metabolic health in general, because I think this is a fascinating rabbit hole that, that we should go down. And we have, I have talked about on insulin resistance a lot on this podcast, and I would really love to get into some of these sort of cellular biochemical theories of this. I've been speaking a lot about polyunsaturated fatty acids recently, and this protons model of obesity and metabolic dysfunction. And there's really no one better than you uh, to break this down because you are one of the people who turned me on to this idea in the first place and sent me Peter's blog from hyperlipids. So anything else you want to say about that article to kind of tie that in a bow before we move on to how we can be metabolically healthy? Um, no, no, I don't think so. I think the, the, the principles that we, we mentioned briefly that, that you've talked about that people who listen to this podcast probably understand intimately, um, you know, those 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 are the places to start and it's just the, the only thing that's worth you know repeating is that it's is a complicated you know it's it, it seems easy um but just not everybody has the has the ability to do those things and there was one study that came out in the uk that suggested that once you adjust for all the differences in terms of environmental exposures particularly but then also socioeconomic stress and um education and all these other things that um maybe may disproportionately affect uh, minority groups um, and those those are different in the UK and in the US. But you know, based on um, uh, where we got our our people from, um, you know, to, to sort of put it politically correctly, um, uh, you know, once you adjust for those inequities and exposures, then the difference in severity really isn't that big. So, so a lot of it is driven by uh, basically social inequality, which is again largely in, in many places driven by by systemic racism. So, um, that's just the point that's important to me to make because I know that 
you know, people will say, you know, if we start talking about metabolic health, you know, some people will say yes, but, and that but is can, can be, can be very important. So that, that would be my only, my only point, final point on that section. And maybe in the future, you and I will have to do a political podcast where we talk about how to change those political inequities and <laughs> systemic racism, but perhaps not today. I'll just share one more uh, reference from your study so I don't lose it. The impact of obesity and metabolic syndrome on immunity, same kind of ideas. Uh, it has been well established that cells of the immune system play an important role in the pathogenesis of obesity and metabolic syndrome related chronic diseases as evidenced by leukocyte activation and dysfunction in metabolic tissues such as adipose tissue, liver, pancreas, and the vasculature. However, recent findings have highlighted the substantial impact that obesity and metabolic, system, metabolic syndrome parameters have on immunity and pathogen defense, including the disruption of lymphoid tissue integrity, alterations in leukocyte development, phenotypes, which is sort of the way that the leukocytes look. Phenotypic, uh, phenotype is a word that means the, the numbers of leukocytes, the way that these cells look, sort of the, uh, the overt expression of this immunologic signature and activity and the coordination of the innate and adaptive immune responses. So all of the things that Tommy and I were talking about before. So let's move on to the question. Let's just talk about insulin resistance. And again, this will probably be part one of a two-part podcast because to me, this is the most fascinating conversation uh, uh, that I've had in a long time is what is insulin resistance? What causes it? And as you and I have been talking about offline, there's a lot of nuance here and it, it almost needs some degree of rebranding. If people are interested in this, they might refer back to the previous podcast I did with Robbie and Cyrus from uh, Mastering Diabetes. We got into some of this there. Again, Tommy and I will dive into this now. This, this is going to be complex and it's going to be biochemistry, but we'll do our best to break it down for you guys. And I think it's a very important conversation. So where should we start, Tommy? Do you just want to start with the idea of metabolism and energy balance and physiologic insulin resistance and kind of go from there? Sure. Um, so, well, very briefly, I think I, I, I mentioned this in, in depth in, in the other podcast that will come out. We talked about insulin resistance previously. Um, the, the idea that insulin's main job is to shove glucose into cells is basically completely backwards. Um, and that is a small part of insulin's role when it's present in high, dose, high doses, I'd call it. Like when a lot has been released from your pancreas, yes, it will help shove glucose into cells, but that's not really its main job. Um, but it is tied to its main job, which is basically ensuring adequate energy availability in the circulation at all times. Um, and in order to maintain our very metabolically demanding brains, um, particularly, um, we basically cannot deal with any loss in energy availability. Um, and that's kind of the downside of the complexities of the brains that we have. And what that means is insulin's role is to, is to make sure there's always energy available. And when people think about insulin, they think about it building up tissues. They think that it's an anabolic hormone that builds up fat, builds up muscle, which actually is not true. Um, it is anti-catabolic, which is kind of the same thing, but the opposite. So what it does is it prevents the breakdown of tissue. Um, so it pre prevents the breakdown of muscle tissue, prevents the release of fat from adipocytes, uh, prevents lipolysis. Uh, and this basically means that 
anytime the insulin is low, you are releasing amino acids from your muscles and you're releasing fatty acids from your adipose um, so that the, the tissues can use the free fatty acids and the liver can turn the glycerol backbone of the triglycerides into glucose. Um, and this is a, it's so the, the thing that your body is most worried about probably is not having enough energy. Uh, but then the next thing that it's worried about is having too much energy because that is damaging too. So in the setting of low glucose and low insulin, so fasting or a diet that doesn't have a large amount of carbohydrate in it, um, your insulin, you know, your insulin is going to be low. And when your insulin is low, you're basically telling your body, well, there's not much carbohydrate around. So you want your cells to be insulin resistant. Because if they are insulin sensitive, then they're going to be taking up glucose that they don't need to take up. And you are otherwise trying to spare for the cells that have to use glucose. And there are a subset of cells in the brain that cannot use anything else. They have to use glucose. And your red blood cells have to use glucose. They cannot use anything else. So um, low insulin and the sort of physiological um, or biochemical uh, setting that it creates tells your other cells, mainly your muscle tissue, um, that it should not be using glucose. You want those to be insulin resistant, and then they will, they will use fatty acids uh, and, uh, instead, largely, maybe some ketones. Um, and that, so that is physiological insulin resistance. And it's there in the setting of low glucose and low insulin, you have higher free fatty acids and higher ketones. Um, and it's to stop basically your muscle tissue using up glucose when you're trying to spare it for other parts of the body. That's a finely tuned um, uh, system trying to just make sure there's enough energy uh, available circulating. Then, do we want to stop there? Do we want to dive straight into pathological insulin resistance or do you have more questions before we move on? We'll, we'll pause there for a moment. And I'll just summarize it. So basically what we're talking about here is in normal physiology, so non-disordered normal physiology, it is completely normal, to use the word again, it is completely uh, healthy, quote unquote, for certain tissues of the body to become resistant to the actions of insulin in order to spare glucose for tissues that need it exclusively. The brain, the red blood cells, I've sometimes heard there are cells in the testicles or kidney or other cells that need yeah. glucose exclusively. Mm -hmm. So this is getting into some biochemistry that's fairly complex, but our cells run on multiple different types of fuel. They can run on fat if we do beta oxidation. They can run on uh, ketones. Like Tommy's saying, they can run on glucose. And when we are talking about insulin resistance, I think it's also interesting and important to talk about which tissue we are talking about that is insulin resistant. Specifically now, at a broader context, I really believe we're talking about the muscles and perhaps the liver. Um, but... In physiological, in, physiolo in physiological insulin resistance. Yes, in physiological insulin. We're talking about the muscles and really the, the liver and the muscles sparing, um, sparing glucose for other tissues and using fats instead. And so from well, the, 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 the liver remains insulin sensitive because the, that insulin signaling is driving gluconeogenesis, which right. is what you, you need, yeah. Okay, that's important. So the liver is remaining insulin sensitive. The muscles are remaining insulin, are becoming physiologically insulin resistant, and the adipocytes are releasing free fatty acids, which serve as fuel. The free fatty acids are triglycerides, uh, which are three fat molecules and a glycerol backbone. And we will talk about what those triglycerides can be composed of in a little bit. So it is normal in that position, as Tommy is suggesting, when you have 
low glucose and low insulin signaling for this to happen. Because as you're saying, really the physiologic role of insulin is to not necessarily to tell cells to take up glucose, but to inhibit lipolysis. You said insulin is not necessarily anabolic, it's more anti-catabolic. So when insulin is signaling in the body, it is telling the adipocytes to stop lipolysis, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the abrogation of lipolysis, which is the release of free fatty acids into the bloodstream from adipocytes by insulin is one of the main roles. And so this is normal physiology that if someone were, for instance, eating a ketogenic or low carbohydrate diet, it is normal for uh, many tissues of the body to have some degree of physiologic insulin resistance to spare that glucose for other tissues like the brain, et cetera. If you guys refer back to the CGM podcast I did, the Continuous Glucose Monitor podcast, you will see an example of someone who was low carb for a very long time and ended up with a very high fasting glucose. Uh, and the we don't really know if that's pathologic or not. Their fasting glucose was 120 milligrams per deciliter all of the time. Their fasting glucose like all day was 120. There were no excursions, but their, their tissues were so physiologically insulin resistant that there was a lot of glucose in the blood all the time because none of the body was taking up this glucose. Now, the nuance that, that we'll get into here is that this, we don't really know if this is a good thing or if this is normal or if this is going to cause problems. It's certainly a little bit unusual from what we see normally in medicine, but the overall energy balance is not necessarily out of whack because as Tommy's saying, really what the body is trying to do here is manage energy balance. We need energy coming from somewhere. We're sort of like a car that can run on gasoline or electric, and it's going to switch back and forth between gasoline or electric, whether you're going to run on glucose or whether you're going to run on fat, you can do both, but you don't want to have excess amounts of fuel. And so that's really, um, after, after Tommy and I have had multiple conversations about this, the way that I think we must differentiate physiologic insulin resistance from pathologic insulin resistance when the system goes out of whack and it is no longer able to regulate the overall energy balance in the body. So anything you want to, I guess, let's move on and talk about now pathologic insulin resistance and go from there. Yeah. So there are a couple of settings where this, this can happen. Um, so the first one that we won't talk about a, a, a lot because it's sort of less common, but in any systemic inflammatory response, uh, you will also get systemic insulin resistance and that's to, to spare glucose for the immune system for what it's, you know, what it's trying to respond to. So you see this particularly in um, autoimmune conditions. So rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, these guys have um, uh, this chronic inflammatory um, uh, milieu going on and they are very insulin resistant and they also have a, a large increase in their risk of type 2 diabetes and, and heart disease. The, um, when, when we're thinking about uh, pathological insulin resistance sort of in the population as, as a whole, it's mainly stemming from insulin resistance in the adipose tissue. And this can be modulated by things like um, uh, exogenous toxins that increase oxidative stress in the adipose, um, systemic inflammation, uh, which will then sort of affect all of this. But in reality, if you have, if your adipocytes are too full for what they want to be, um, then they become insulin resistant. They say, I can't take any more, right? I'm, I'm full up. Um, and then they start spilling out 
free fat, free fatty acids. It's just like too much. They can't they can't be held they can't be held in by by the by the insulin. Um, and in that setting, you have high insulin, high glucose, and high free fatty acids, uh, which are coming out of the adipose tissue um, pathologically, which they shouldn't be. So at this at, at this point, you have more energy circulating in your bloodstream than you want. And when people think about insulin resistance in types of diabetes, they think about, well, the, the cells aren't listening to the insulin message. Um, they're not taking up glucose. That's what you immediately think. But if you look at glucose uptake in people with type 2 diabetes, it is increased compared to people who are insulin sensitive and in good metabolic health. So these cells are already taking up as much glucose as they possibly can. They're working really hard to try and get this excess glucose out of the system, but you, eventually you just overwhelm it. Um, Traditionally, we thought, well, if we just dump a load more insulin into the system, we can bring glucose down. And we can, but almost nothing improves. Uh, and you make people fatter as well. Um, because, because insulin's action at the fat cell is to stuff it full of more stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right? And and to, it, yeah, to sort of inhibit lipolysis as much as possible, even though... And so most of, the, most of the glucose that circulates in types of diabetes is inappropriate glucose generated by the liver through gluconeogenesis is not what came from the diet so you have inappropriate breakdown of muscle tissue because the the, the skeletal muscle is insulin resistant you have inappropriate um release of free fatty acids from um the, the adipose tissue those end up in the liver and they're worse in that state than they are as glucose so the liver just turns into glucose because there's nothing else it has nothing you know, it has to deal with it somehow and that's what it does and that's where most of this excess glucose uh comes from the inappropriate gluconeogenesis at the level of the liver. So if we just focus on the adipocyte there, I, I want to highlight that for people uh, one more time, that in a state of pathologic insulin resistance, glucose is high, insulin is high, right? This is different than physiologic insulin resistance, which is usually glucose is low and insulin is low. But if glucose is high and insulin is high, then at the level of the adipocyte, we should not see free fatty acid release because that insulin should be signaling to the adipocyte to release free fat, to stop, to abrogate free fatty acid release. But because these adipocytes are so overwhelmed, they're so stuffed, uh, in addition to, I guess it would be hormone-sensitive lipase, we have something called ATGL, which is this adipocyte triglyceride lipase, which is then sort of cutting up these uh, fatty acids, making these free fatty acids, and the adipocytes are spewing them out. Basically, they're, they're stuffed to the gills. They're not supposed to be releasing free fatty acids, but they are because the adipocytes have become essentially resistant to, uh, I guess it's, it's a little bit of both, right? They get so distended mm. that they're, they're not stopping the free, and they're just, they're not stopping free fatty acid release, and they're just spewing out free fatty acids while insulin is trying to stop that. And put more fatty acids back into them, right? Yeah, except for the last bit. So, so uptake of, of um, fats into, adipo, into adipocytes is basically, there's a basal amount. It just happens all the time. Mm -hmm. That's not really under insulin's control. But you, but you think about it um, in terms of like a bathtub, right? So the tap is almost always on, and then insulin regulates the plug. Right, and the plug is the lipolysis. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so when fats are going into the adipocyte, you have lipoprotein lipase, right? And when fats are coming out, that's hormone-sensitive lipase, which is- Under the control of insulin. That, right, under the control of insulin and doing the free fatty acids. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. So for people that 
that are not familiar with this, if we've lost you, we'll come back around. I told you we were going to get in the weeds, but <laughs> let's, let's, let's bring it back up to the surface for air a little bit and, and help people understand why this is important. But so where do we go from here? I think that there, there's something going wrong in the system. What do you think initiates this process? What causes pathologic insulin resistance? There are multiple issues here, but let's just try and break this down and maybe get into some of the, uh, the ideas around the protons theory of obesity. Yes. Yeah, so, so probably the, the simplest way to think about it is that your fat cells are are over full, right? That's that's kind of where this starts. And what sets the limit is is going to depend on environmental exposures, systemic inflammation, genetics, all that kind of stuff. But at some point, your cells become over full. And there is um, probably a, a significant um, uh, role in, in terms of dietary fats that play here, right? This is where this is where this starts to come in. So polyunsaturated fatty acids, um, omega-3s, even more than omega-6s, but omega-6s are um, most ubiquitous in the Western diet. So particularly linoleic acid from soybean, um, safflower, sunflower, um, oil, uh, canola oils. Um, the way these are metabolized, they like compared to saturated fats, they maintain insulin sensitivity because they result in less uh, ox reactive oxygen species being produced when they are metabolized. Now, you might think that's a good thing. You remain more insulin sensitive. You're making less oxidative. You're making less reactive oxygen species, less, less oxidative stress. That's great. Yes, sort of. So th the problem is that for them, for a given amount of these things uh, being um, metabolized, um, you will be more insulin sensitive for the same number of calories that you ate. So you will store more, um, and that will mess with your satiety signaling. So in the short term, you have more, you maintain more insulin sensitivity, but you actually increase the ability of adipocytes to store fat. So you can get an expansion, and, and you see this quite nicely in rodent studies, where if you feed them a high-fat diet that's mainly linoleic acid, they will store, a, but you have to, well, you, you, you kind of have to um, fix their calories. Um, but if, well, if you don't fix their calories, they'll just keep eating and eating and eating and they get faster and faster and faster. But even for a given number of calories, they will store more fat because their adipocytes stay more insulin sensitive for longer and more of that ends up um, being stored. Whereas what should happen in the postprandial state is that you become insulin resistant so you don't store um, and that helps signal to satiety. So having lots of uh, poofers in the diet actually sort of hacks around a normal signaling mechanism that should happen postprandially. And as a result, you end up um, main uh, maintaining insulin sensitivity when you maybe wouldn't want to, and you store, store more energy as fat. So basically, we're really, right now, we're mostly focused on the adipocyte. And, and thinking about it this way has helped me understand it. And we may even be focused on the visceral adipocyte, because we know this visceral fat is this metabolically active organ. Certainly, subcutaneous fat is important too, but visceral adipose really correlates with this pathologic insulin resistance quite well. And visceral adipose tissue also correlates inversely with polyunsaturated fatty acid consumption in apparently both humans and uh, rodent studies, as we'll see. So if we're looking at a visceral adipocyte, these are fat cells within the peritoneum, within the belly. So in your stomach, there is this, 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 
this cavity in which your, your abdominal organs live. Your, your intestine, you know, basically your guts are in the peritoneum of your stomach. And when there is fat around those organs, that is a metabolically active organ called the visceral adipose tissue. And basically, if we look at the way visceral adipose tissues respond to two different types of fat, or specifically, let's just talk about polyunsaturated fat to make this very simple. Humans do not make polyunsaturated fatty acids. We must get these from the diet in small amounts, but as you and I have talked about, Tommy, there seems to be a real environmental evolutionarily discordance between the amount of polyunsaturated fatty acids in the diet today relative to what our ancestors were eating in the past. In fact, you gave a great talk at IHMC in which you showed this paper, which is there's an increase in the adipose tissue linoleic acid of U.S. adults in the last half century, and um, it's our results indicate that adipose tissue linoleic acid has increased by 136%, which is more than doubled over the last half century, highly correlated with an increase in dietary linoleic acid intake over the same time period. So in that talk, you mentioned um, a study of the Maasai and perhaps other indigenous groups saying, showing that really only 2 to 3% of their total calories in indigenous cultures come from linoleic acid. And now in humans, we are up to probably, you know, significantly more than 10 to 20, 10 to 20% of our calories are from linoleic acid in 2020. And as Tommy suggests, this is mostly coming from things like corn oil, canola oil, safflower, soy, peanut, etc. And as I've talked about on previous podcasts, it may also be coming somewhat from animals that are fed corn and soy, specifically things like chicken or pork which incorporate much higher levels of linoleic acid into their fatty acid tissues when they are fed these fatty acid, these linoleic acid rich grain foods like corn and soy. So it's really not debatable that the amount of linoleic acid, this 18 carbon polyunsaturated omega-6 fatty acid is much higher in the human diet today. And when we eat these polyunsaturated fatty acids, even omega-3, as you're saying, Tommy, and we can show a study that really illustrates this. The fat cells in our belly respond in a unique way to these. And this is where things get a little bit twisty and turny. So stick with us. These polyunsaturated fatty acids, because of the way they are metabolized and the ratio of FADH2 to NADH that is made from their metabolism and beta oxidation in the mitochondria, this affects the amount of reactive oxygen species generated by reverse electron transport within the electron transport chain in the mitochondria. And that is a signal to the cell to either stay insulin sensitive, this is the adipocyte, remember, or become insulin resistant. And the idea here is that polyunsaturated fatty acids, because they have this double bond, have a lower FADH2 to NADH ratio. It's, be, it's because of the unsaturated bonds, right, right. single bonds, not the, the double bonds. Sorry, is the double bonds. What no. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> so it's because of the double bond, which is the unsaturation, uh, leads to a lower ratio of FEDH2 to NADH. If people are curious about this, we can go into the biochemistry in a future podcast. That appears to be a signal. And that signal is telling the adipocyte, the visceral adipose tissue cell, to remain insulin sensitive. Now, in colloquial parlance, we might say, great, we want all the cells in our body to be insulin sensitive, but not so much because 
that was why Tommy and I talked about physiologic insulin resistance first. We definitely want physiologic insulin resistance to happen at different parts of our body at different times of the day under different circumstances. And if the visceral adipocyte remains insulin sensitive un, uh, incorrectly because we are overfeeding it with polyunsaturated fatty acids at an evolutionarily inconsistent way, it grows and grows and grows. Because as we know, when the cell remains insulin sensitive, insulin allows, insulin prevents lipolysis and the cell takes in, has this normal rate of fatty acid growth and um, you get the adipocyte growing. And then as the adipocyte grows too much, as Tommy is suggesting, you reach this physiologic threshold, which is different for every person. And as you'll hear in the, in the other podcast, the part two of this, this meeting with Tommy, um, some cultures tend to uh, sort of reach the level of expansion of their adipocytes sooner than others. And they get this sort of, uh, they get this incorrect sort of spewing of fatty acids much earlier or inflammation at the level of the adipocyte can also cause the adipocytes to, um, to sort of become problematic and spew out free fatty acids earlier. Did I get all that right, Tommy? That makes you sense? Know, yeah, that's, that's right. And th this is how some of the systemic insulin sensitivity is, is signaled. So, cause you might, you might say, well, um, if insulin is, is low, how do the cells become resistant to it? Right, because normally you think of becoming resistant to something because its level is its level is high, and so having um, a difference in the circulating free fatty acids, so more uh, saturated fatty acids um, relative to the unsaturated fatty acids, and this is part of signaling from the adipocytes that, and when those are metabolized by uh, the cells, that helps signal back to the insulin receptor to how sensitive it should be, and this is it's basically all. So you mentioned reverse electron transport. Uh, in the mitochondria, um, ox oxidative, so the, the, the level of um, reactive oxygen species in the cell basically signals to the insulin receptor. So a small amount increases activity. And this is basically how in insulin or glucose stimulates its own uptake in metabolism. You basically have some glucose comes in, it gets, meta it gets metabolized, you get some reactive oxygen species produced, which is just part of normal metabolism. Those go back, activate the insulin receptor. But then you get to a point where as um, oxidative stress increases, uh, um, largely through hydrogen peroxide, increases, then the, the receptor becomes uh, resistant. And so when you're thinking about these fats being metabolized in the mitochondria, the amount of reverse electron transport you get, uh, which is increased um, as your FADH2 to NADH ratio increases, so that increases with the amount of saturation in the, the, the carbon chain of the fats, it creates more uh, reactive oxygen species which feed back to the insulin receptor to increase insulin uh, resistance. And that's basically telling the cell, hey, we've got enough energy um, and you know, so we don't need to take up glucose. And that's, 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 that's a good thing. Uh, however, um, if you have a, you know, a, a, an increase in these unsaturated fatty acids and they're, they're now being burned because that's like what's around, it's, they're, they're, they haven't been stored, they're, being, they're spilling out these fat cells um, or you know, that's just what's available after a meal. You can do this acutely in a feeding study, which we'll, we'll maybe talk about. Then those cells will stay insulin sensitive relatively, even though um, they don't need to be. They don't need to be taking up glucose. They sh should be shutting down that signal, but they don't uh, because of the type of fat that's around. And these... Um, polyunsaturated fatty acids just aren't really found in large amounts in the diet. Yes, you might get 2 to 3% uh, 
Um, and again, that will come from some plant foods and then some will come from the animals that you eat that ate those plants. Um, and then, you know, uh, uh, that's the omega-6s and then you know, a small amount, right? Probably, you know, less than 1% is going to come from, from omega-3. So in small doses, these things are absolutely necessary, but when they're, you know, they're in excess and rather than being, rather than being used uh, to, uh, say, uh, produce uh, certain uh, inflammatory responses because you know they're used in part of the inflammatory, you know, inflammatory signaling when they're just there and that's 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 all there is and they become a a major macronutrient. Then they start to mess mess with insulin signaling itself. And I find this so fascinating that that there's this environmental signal and it can mess with insulin signaling in a big way. And if we're eating a bunch of these vegetable oils or animals that are fed these vegetable oils. It really, I think, is one of the major problems in human metabolic health today. As you said, there are many things that can cause this. Environmental things can cause it. Systemic inflammation, autoimmunity can cause some disordered signaling here. But it all starts at the level of the mitochondria. So we are inside the cells, and we are inside the cells of the adipocytes. And these adipocytes are then releasing now different free fatty acids to the periphery that are signaling to the periphery whether the periphery should be insulin-sensitive or insulin resistant. And it works in exactly the same way or a very similar way that there is appears to be a ratio between two fatty acids, specifically two 16 carbon free fatty acids, palmitate and palmitoleic acid. And the ratio of these fatty acids released by the adipocytes changes uh, according to what we eat and the overall metabolic state. And so hopefully people are still with us here. The broad context here is that the case that Tommy and I are trying to make is that the increased amount of polyunsaturated fatty acids, mostly linoleic acid in the human diet in 2020, is evolutionarily inconsistent and is one of the major driving factors in systemic, pervasive, pathological insulin resistance. Now, the reason this is confusing for people is because it's normal human physiology for the, our, our cells, our adipocytes, to talk to our muscle cells and the rest of the body um, when we are in low carb states or when we are fasting and create some degree of insulin resistance, which is physiologic. But remember in that state, there is not energy overload, but the system gets broken when we kind of hack it with this, uh, this fatty acid, this linoleic acid, which we would never really have seen in such high quantities evolutionarily. The reason this whole thing is important is because the, this whole discussion began with why are we so metabolically unhealthy as a human? Why are only 12% of people in the United States metabolically healthy? And one of the major inciting factors I believe here is that we are consuming much more of this fatty acid as humans than we should be, than we were evolutionarily, which is really the reason for my comments about sort of corn and soy subsidies and junk food. And I just, as I've said in my social media, I think it's very important people know their enemy. I, I used to love Rage Against the Machine they have a song, Know Your Enemy. And a lot of people can't do six things for their diet. But it's my strong opinion, and, and I'd love for you to weigh in on this, Tommy. I imagine you would agree that if we could get rid of these vegetable oils, or if we could educate people about the problems here, or at least put something on the label or change this idea, that we could see massively improved metabolic health. Now, there are many forces working against this based on some misleading science that we'll cover before we wrap up today. But um, do you think that would work? I mean, if we could just get rid of all this excess linoleic acid, what do you think the effects would be on the human population? I've got to imagine they would be massively positive. Yeah, I think, um, 
you know, I'm, I'm particularly interested in linoleic acid because of its effects uh, inhibiting uh, DHA uptake and metabolism in the brain, and then also particularly in response to injury. And so, that, like, especially in the developing brain, which is you know, what I, I study most of the time, that's, that's, my, that's my day job. Um, so, so there, um, I think it has huge effects. And it's been you know, in multiple, um, well, actually both human in human brains and in animal studies, you basically see that if you have large amounts of linoleic acid um, in in the diet, so either it comes from for, like formula. So f- so there were some some nice studies looking at formula fed infants who then unfortunately died. And if you look at the amount of um, uh, DHA versus linoleic acid in their brain, uh, the linoleic acid competes for uptake, and that's been confirmed then in, in, in multiple animal studies. And DHA is like potentially the most important. DHA and arachidonic acid between them are the t- two most important um, uh, fats for the, for the developing brain. And you will get um, a suppression uh, of, of the uptake of DHA in the brain, which is basically crucial for mitochondrial function and you know, synapse function. Um, and so, so I'm particularly worried about that in the, in the developing brain. Um, but I do have a nice um, a study that, that I'll show you that, that kind of um, to, uh, sort of elicits some of these, these points that, 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 that you're making. So... So this is a study where they compared ketogenic diet, so it was 15% protein, 50% carbohydrates, um, 70% fat, and they, that either came mainly from polyunsaturated fats or from saturated fats. Um, it, was, it, was, it was short, it was a short, it was only five days, um, but it was definitely enough to see these effects. And you can, you can see the diets here. So the polyunsaturated uh, diet was like imitation bacon and soy milk and soy nuts and all this good stuff that I'm sure everybody is salivating over the thought of eating. Um, but here, this this is what you see. So in the polyunsaturated, that's that's the gray. You see higher ketones. You think great, more ketones. That must be better. Uh, lower glucose. You know, of course, we want lower glucose. Um, and here, higher insulin sensitivity. So the, so the guys eating more saturated fat, on average, became more insulin resistant. And um, well, their glucose went down a little bit, but not as much. Uh, and their ketones didn't go as high. So you think, hang on a second. That means that polyunsaturated fats are more ketogenic. So I need more of those in my diet. Um, and so, some people who don't understand this process will suggest that. Um, however, if you think about it um, more holistically, you'd think, okay, if... I am not eating very much carbohydrate and I want to spare carbohydrate like uh, glucose for some cells in my kidney and my brain and my, my testes and, and um, my, my, my red blood cells, then maybe I want to be peripherally insulin resistant. I want to be physiologically insulin resistant. So that uh, with saturated, you know, saturated fat circulating palmitate is how that is normally signaled. If a lot of your fat instead comes from polyunsaturated fatty acids. Yes, you will be more insulin sensitive. Your glucose will go down lower. But um, what's that telling you? It's telling you that the um, tissues that shouldn't be taking up glucose are taking up glucose. So you're going to have lower glucose. And then what's going to happen is you're going to be hungrier. So you're going to eat more because you don't have the circulating glucose that you need um, for the brain and these other, these other cells. So this is how these fats can actually drive an increase in hunger because of how they mess with our normal um, insulin signaling. And then, so this is where it starts to get complicated because you think, well, hang on a second, you just told me that these vegetable oils make us insulin resistant. Um, But it's because of the long game. So what happens is um, you are um, inappropriately insulin sensitive. You increase um, um, adipose uh, deposition 
And eventually those cells become so big that they're overfull and they start to start to result in systemic insulin resistance. So in the short term, you might do an intervention study and say, hey, if we take saturated fats out of the diet and we put in PUFAs instead, we're more insulin sensitive and that's good. And yes, it is good. Um, you know, maybe you'll, you'll have lower blood sugar, which is obviously a problem for much of the population. But long term, there's going to be, uh, it's going to uh, mess with appetite signaling and it's going to increase uh, overall caloric consumption. You're going to get fatter and then you're going to get type 2 diabetes much further down, down the road. And by that point, you're in real trouble. And this is what is so hard about this, that it's a very complex equation and that people will look at those markers and say, look, you're more insulin sensitive in the short term or your glucose is lower. But as you're saying, that glucose is going into tissues that aren't supposed to be taking it up. And you have to realize that in that short term, your adipocytes are getting bigger and you're getting fatter. And there are, we probably don't have time to go into it today, but there are many studies which show uh, I think it's mostly rodent studies because they can't do these biopsies in humans that when you feed rodents um, excess amounts of these polyunsaturated fatty acids, you get dysregulated feeding and problems with appetite, potentially because of problems with the uh, ventromedial hypothalamic cells and damage to those and appetite dysregulation. I'll just show one study that I have um, mentioned in the past, um, at least showing this. So dietary linoleic acid elevates endogenous 2-AG, which is uh, an uh, endocannabinoid and anandamide. These are both uh, endogenous cannabinoids and induces obesity. So this is exactly what Tommy's talking about. This is done in rats and mice. So we have to put a little asterisk there, but the same thing does appear to happen in the humans long-term. But in the short term, this polyunsaturated fatty acid is breaking the sort of satiety mechanisms and these mice are eating more. Now, I think that what Tommy's pointing out there is very nuanced and you guys might have to go back and listen to it twice, but in the setting of low carbohydrate diets, we don't want those things to be happening that the polyunsaturated fats are doing. They are breaking normal metabolism. We want those tissues to be physiologically insulin resistant. That is a normal part of the process, which is why this gets so confusing. If a plant-based advocate or someone is saying, aha, see, you're becoming physiologically insulin resistant, you say, wait a minute, this is more complex than that. There's a big difference between that and pathologic insulin resistance. In this setting, your overall energy balance is not overwhelmed, but it will be eventually because you will stuff your fat cells. They will become too big. They will just release the free fatty acids without any, uh, without any ability to stop that because they become overdistended because they've been insulin sensitive too long incorrectly because of the polyunsaturated fatty acids. And therein is the beginning of pathologic insulin resistance. But you guys can see that this is quite a complex rabbit hole. I'll, I'll show a few more studies just to illustrate this. We can go through them, Tommy, just to kind of bring these points home. Um, so this is one that you and I looked at before. So this is kind of interesting, and it just talks about these two circulating fatty acids, palmitic acid and palmitoleic acid. These are coming from the adipocytes, and they are the signal to the rest of the body, whether it should be insulin sensitive or insulin resistant. And um, do you want to walk us through this one a little bit? Yeah, so this is a, a nice study where they sort of stepwise decrease and increase the carbohydrate content of the diet. And what they saw is that the amount of palmitate, so and when when people think about this, that they, you know, sort of people are like, well, the fat that you eat is the fat that is circulating in your blood. And that's just what this study shows very nice is that's just not true. Um, and so what they saw is that as you, so, so palmitate, which is the six, uh, 16 carbon 
saturated fat. Um, and it's the, it's the main fat that we make if we're, if we're making fat from carbohydrate. It usually ends up as palmitate uh, because it's an important signaling fat as well. Um, so that stays relatively um, level. And so if you have, you know, so, so say if all the fat circulating in your body is palmitate, that's, it's fully saturated. It's going to tell your cells to be um, insulin resistant because that's usually going to be occurring in the setting of low insulin and low glucose. And you want your muscle tissue to be relatively insulin resistant. When you start to increase the carbohydrate content of the diet, palmitate stays about the same, but palmitoleic acid or palmitoleate increases. And what this then tells the cells in the body is to be more insulin sensitive. And this is basically saying, hey, there's more carbohydrate. We're going to use more of our cells. We're going to use more of our energy from glucose. Um, and therefore, I need you to be more insulin sensitive. And so it's the balance of the two, which is driven or should be driven by the, the macronutrient and, and total caloric content of the diet, which then tells the cells, uh, the peripheral cells, which fuels they should be burning. And uh, I think this um, this paper, even though it wasn't what they were setting out to show, um, and so um, the, uh, even it wasn't what they were setting out to show, it, it very nicely highlights this idea that, that Peter from hyperlipidism is putting forward, the, the protons hypothesis. What they were, what they tried to infer was that um, in um, in metabolic disease, we often see um, inappropriately elevated palmitoleic acid, right? And that's because of the, the, at this point, our insulin signaling has broken down. So they were like, well, palmitoleic, palmitoleic acid, more of it circulating, is um, associated with met metabolic disease. Therefore, as that increases with more carbohydrate, that's a bad thing. Um, I think actually that is sort of like a, a nuanced separate point what it shows very nicely which is what and which, so the more important point of the study is that as you change the macronutrient composition of the diet that changes the fatty acid composition of the free fatty acids circulating in the blood which is what is sort of coordinating uh, which cells are burning which um you know which fuel yes exactly exactly so just to show people this one more time they there is this misconception as tommy is saying um that higher proportions of plasma saturated fatty acids uh, predict a greater risk. Well, the higher proportions of plasma saturated fatty acids predict a greater risk for developing type two diabetes and heart disease. But um, there, the, the amount of saturated fat in the diet does not correlate directly with the saturated fatty acid in the blood. This is the palmitate in the blood. The palmitate in the blood, as we've been talking about, is a saturated fatty acid that is used in concert with palmitoleic acid, the unsaturated fatty acid. These are released from the adipocytes to signal to the rest of the body whether it should be insulin sensitive or insulin resistant. Remember that if you have a higher amount of palmitate in your body, uh, in your bloodstream, then that is the signal from your adipocytes to the rest of the body to be insulin resistant. Now, in some cases that is normal, but in the case of, um, in the case of diabetes and metabolic syndrome, it is not normal because uh, they are not supposed to be signaling that or there is an overall energy overload. We kind of talked about that earlier in the podcast. In this experiment, they had 16 adults, metabolic syndrome. They had six three-week diets. They progressively increased carbohydrate with concomitant decreases in total and saturated fat. So what they say here is, despite a distinct increase in saturated fat intake from baseline to the low-carbohydrate diet, 46 to 84 grams a day, and then a gradual decrease in saturated fat to 32 grams a day at the highest carbohydrate phase, there were no significant changes in the proportion of the total saturated fat in any plasma lipid fractions, meaning that plasma lipid fractions 
are not controlled by diet. They're controlled by the adipocytes, which are signaling to the body whether or not it should be insulin sensitive or insulin resistant, which is really a metric based on overall energy balance. The next part is whereas plasma saturated fat remain relatively stable, the proportion of palmitoleic acid in the plasma triglyceride and cholesterol ester significantly and uniformly reduced as carbohydrate intake decreased, meaning that as you decrease carbs, palmitoleic acid goes down. This is normal physiology that you, when you are decreasing carbs, you want those tissues to spare glucose to allow glucose to be used by the other tissue. And then it gradually increased as dietary carbohydrate was reintroduced. This is exactly what Tommy and I have been talking about, that, that if your body wants to use glucose, which it does sometimes and not at others, it will increase the amount of palmitoleic acid in the bloodstream coming from the adipocytes. If it wants to spare glucose, it will decrease the amount of palmitoleic acid and you will have a higher fraction of palmitate in the blood coming from those adipocytes. But it's really the, because, but it is really those adipocytes that are signaling to the periphery whether the periphery should be insulin sensitive or insulin resistant. And the reason palmitate versus palmitoleic acid have different effects is because of this FADH to NADH ratio at the level of mitochondria that we were talking about. The unsaturation, palmitoleic acid, changes this F to N ratio and you get more insulin sensitivity in the periphery. Now, if you guys are, if your head is spinning, you can listen to this again. <laughs> but the, the idea here is that if you are on a low carbohydrate diet, your muscles will want to spare glucose for the brain. This is normal physiology, but the overall energy balance will remain normal. And in a completely different situation, so these are two separate situations, my idea, and I think Tommy agrees with this, is that most or much of the metabolic illness that happens today is occurring because we are overstuffing our body with these polyunsaturated fatty acids. And in contrast, what this study hasn't showed, but other studies will show, is that if you increase the amount of polyunsaturated fatty acid in your diet, then the amount of palmitoleic acid in your blood will increase. We've seen that, right, Tommy? That if you, the amount of polyunsaturated fatty acids in your blood will go up if you increase those in contrast to saturated fats. So if you eat lots of linoleic acid, you will see more linoleic acid, you will see more palmitoleic acid in the blood. That creates an evolutionarily inconsistent situation of persistent insulin sensitivity leading to overexpansion of the adipocytes, and that is the beginning of insulin, sort of this pathological insulin resistance. Did all that kind of jive? Yeah, yeah. I think um, in terms of linoleic acid and, and um, circulating palmitoleic, it may have been looked at. I, I don't know the studies myself, but when you have you know, when, when a, a large proportion, you know, 15, 20% of your, your calories are coming from linoleic acid, then um, you're basically going to be lowering the F2N ratio even more than palmitoleic acid. So, so it basically becomes its own signaling metabolite and, you know, is, is, is sort of completely hacking past this, this normal mechanism that's supposed to regulate which tissues of which are using which uh, fuel, but also is part of satiety signaling. And so there's the, there's the endocannabinoid bit that you talked about, but then there's also just the, you know, the, the basic, um, you know, at the, at the level of the mitochondria, how are things supposed to be balanced in terms of insulin signaling and satiety? And, and, it, and it's um, sort of overwhelming those as well. So we'll take a deep breath. We, this is tricky stuff. This one is fascinating to me. Again, it's done in mice, but they're talking about 
actually feeding stearic acid, which is fascinating. So they're feeding an 18 carbon saturated fatty acid. And it's, it may not be so much that they're feeding stearic acid or it's the ratio because they had one group that was fed stearic acid and other two other groups that were fed oleic acid and linoleic acid rich oils. And what they found, which is basically that the, what we're talking about here, again, it's in mice, so we'll put the asterisk. What they found, and I'll show you the pictures here, which are pretty striking, was that the stearic acid group, which had lower levels of linoleic acid, had very small amounts of visceral adipose tissue. The corn oil group, lots of linoleic acid, lots of visceral adipose tissue. Safflower oil group, uh, oleic acid and linoleic acid, both of which are have unsaturation points in the molecule, had more uh, visceral adipose. You can see the actual weight of the abdominal fat here in grams. Stearic acid is much smaller. So basically, they, they did not feed these rats, the stearic acid rats, vegetable oils. They fed them a, an 18-carbon saturated fat that is very highly represented in animal foods, specifically beef suet, and they had much lower uh, visceral adipose tissue. These mice had six packs. These mice got fat. <laughs> So this is essentially the illustration of this in mice. I think it's quite interesting. I've talked about this a little bit in the past as well. So that's a fascinating illustration there. Um, where do you want to go from here, Tommy? Should we talk about this one, the, uh, the, the lipodystrophy, just to kind of bring this point home? Oh, yes. So, so this is um, the, the, ex the most extreme example, which makes the point very nicely in terms of insulin sensitivity of the fat cells um, and, a, and capacity of the fat cells to, to be uh, a major driver of metabolic health um, is, is lipodystrophy. So, so we, we talked briefly about um, genetics affecting what some people call the personal fat threshold. How much fat can you stuff into your cells before, they, before this pro all these problems start? And uh, Caucasians can get much fatter before they get type 2 diabetes compared to, say, Southeast Asian populations that they're often, often compared to. Um, and this, this is like a, a part of a genetic component. So, so like you can get, um, you know, so it's, you know, you, it, but the, the, the amount that you can fit into your fat cells and the amount that they are insulin sensitive, that's your metabolic buffer essentially right because you know we're if, if we're going to overeat you know you know the sensitivity and the capacity of your fat cells is your metabolic buffer um which um is why i often uh worry about people who do things like liposuction and stuff like that because you're just like re you're removing your metabolic buffer like at some point that's going to be important and you've just like taken out of your body which which worries me because what, what you see in people with lipodystrophy is they don't have any fat cells for one reason for one reason or another and so they don't have a buffer and these guys become, you know, they're super ripped, right? You see them like, I mean, they're not usually like, like really big, but they're super lean. Um, and you'd look at that and be like, Oh, you look, you look like you're in great shape. You know, you're going to be, um, you know, super metabolically healthy, but these guys have no adipose tissue and they become but diabetic, right? Don't they have you know? a lot of visceral adipose tissue? Yes, they, I mean, it depends on the type, and they, they certainly, yeah, they certainly can. So they will stuff as much of it into that into the visceral adipose tissue as they can. But but the problem is when you when you I mean when you're in a caloric excess, which a lot of people end up being in, you have no. So your subcutaneous fat that's like your biggest metabolic buffer, and that's what just differs uh, between populations. And so you know we'll put uh, again Caucasians will put a lot of um, excess energy into subcutaneous fat, and that's going to be protective up to a certain point. Uh, but yeah, so these guys. 
Um, the visceral fat fills very quickly just because that you know it doesn't have that much capacity. Uh, there's no buffer in the subcutaneous fat, and they become type two diabetic um, really quickly. They're, they're they're basically like super insulin resistant their entire lives. And so I'll pull up the paper here, and we can show it. It's pretty interesting. What's interesting about this one specifically is that it's a monogenic form of insulin resistance, and this would be a pathologic insulin resistance. Um, and it's, it's one gene, it's this LMNA gene, but what they find in these people is that their free fatty acids are very high. And I think that if we, I don't think they did it in this study, um, though I could confirm that. I bet if we looked at these people, they would find that the palmitate to palmitoleic acid ratio was fairly high, that this, these fatty acids, essentially their, their adipocytes are extended because they have very few subcutaneous fat, you know, adipocytes, their visceral adipose tissue adipocytes, which are in small number, are extended, they're distended, and they're just spewing out these free fatty acids. So the point of this is just to understand that, um, that these free fatty acids coming from the visceral adipose tissue, coming from the adipose tissue in general, are one of the major signals to the rest of the body to become insulin resistant. These people are not, um, you know, they're not getting to this point in the way that most people are with diabetes, they're having this problem, this single gene, in this case, this is Dunnigan partial familial lipodystrophy. There are many of these. They're having this distension because they have so few of these fat cells that they're becoming insulin resistant pathologically very quickly because those small number of fat cells become overextended. I pulled so up a, it, yeah. In, the, in this scenario, and I think it, it does happen eventually in, in sort of people who traditionally become type 2 diabetic, is that, so we've talked about the, the nuanced balance between palmitate versus palmitoleate. Um, at some point, if you have very high levels of free fatty acids, your cells are going to become insulin resistant no matter what, right? Because this is, it basically completely shuts down normal insulin signaling. So I'm not even sure in these guys the, the ratio is going to be important. You know, they basically have nowhere to store this stuff, so it just keeps circulating and it's going to shut down. They just have so much of the free fatty acid. Yeah. So this is a neurology paper looking at muscle and nerve pathology, and this this same thing, this Dunnigan familial partial light dystrophy. But I just want to show you a picture of this guy. You know, like he's ripped. You know, like we don't. I don't know if I can see a six pack, but you can see that um, at least in that photo, like this is not someone that you would necessarily think about with diabetes. He has he's jacked with these calves and these muscles in his legs, but he's extremely insulin resistant because of what those adipocytes are doing, are signaling to the rest of the body. So hopefully that makes sense to people. I'll just kind of summarize it and you can add anything that you want, Tommy. What we're talking about here is just the fact that with coronavirus, people with metabolic dysfunction are much higher risk. And one of the major evolutionarily and evolutionary inconsistencies we see is this increase in uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids. Uh, primarily omega-6 linoleic acid, but other ones can play a role as well. And because of these molecular mechanisms that Tommy and I have been talking about, it's probably sending the wrong signal to the adipocytes. They're remaining insulin sensitive when they should be insulin resistant. They're growing, they're expanding, and you get this expansion and this loss of this, this excretion of free fatty acids leading to disordered metabolism. The take-home message is avoid polyunsaturated fatty acids like the plague get to evolutionarily consistent levels. Before we move on from this topic, I think because I've been talking about this so much, Tommy, I've been getting some backlash online. I generally don't listen to this stuff, um, but some of my friends were tagging me and I got sent this paper, which I thought would be very interesting for you and I to touch on briefly before we move on to the last topic of today. So this is a meta-analysis 
uh, from Darius Mozaferian saying, you know, the effects on coronary heart disease, you increase polyunsaturated fat in place of saturated fat. It's a meta-analysis of RCTs and their findings are evidence that consuming PUFA, polyunsaturated fatty acids, in place of saturated fatty acids reduces coronary heart disease events in RCTs. So this is completely opposite to what you and I are talking about. So it's important to address why, uh, what's going on here. And um, I would also refer people back to the podcast I did with Nina Teicholz to address some of this stuff as well. But you said you had a good story about this. So I'll let you jump in. Yeah, so Darius Mozafarian has been a big uh, proponent of, of uh, veg- vegetable oils and, and, and PUFAs, you know, linoleic acid containing vegetable oils. And so there's this meta-analysis. So then there's another one that I actually kind of alluded to when I mentioned earlier, is that if you look at controlled feeding studies, uh, you replace either carbohydrates or saturated fat with PUFAs, you get a short-term increase in insulin sensitivity, which I would argue is not necessarily what you want if your physiology is functioning correctly uh, and, and you're eating a high proportion of your calories from fat. Um, but that meta-analysis, which people should go and look at, if you look at the studies that are included, first of all, there are some studies that should be included that aren't, like the Sydney Diet Heart Study, where they gave people um, safflower oil, high linoleic acid safflower oil, margarine and oil to replace their saturated fats. And those guys saw an increase in all-cause mortality and an increase in coronary heart disease. Um, Then if you look at the studies that were included in that, uh, you have things like the Oslo Diet Heart Study. So the Oslo Diet Heart Study, uh, in both the short and the long term, so these guys with the, the five-year outcomes, there was an 11-year outcome paper as well, they did see uh, lower myocardial infarction-associated uh, death in the intervention group who had higher vegetable oil intake. However, in 11 years, the same number of people had died in both groups. So that tells you that uh, linoleic acid, if you believe that it reduces heart disease, which this study maybe shows, uh, or vegetable or PUFAs decrease heart disease, it increases death from some other causes. Um, and that's going to potentially be you know, cancers. Um, so, you know, at least in that one, it, 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 was, it was a wash. Um, and there are other, um, you know, lots of people have dug into the, the uh, confounding factors in most of these studies. So the, the Finnish studies, the mental health hospital studies, um, these were basically completely confounded by the fact that this wasn't technically a randomized controlled trial. In a randomized controlled trial, you um, would uh, randomize people at every, so there are multiple hospital sites, and you would randomize people within each site to um, two different treatments. So I'm involved in you know, writing up data from a couple of uh, randomized controlled trials um, in babies. And at each site, they randomized people to randomize the, the, the babies to different treatments. Here, they randomized whole hospitals to one uh, diet or another. Now, the problem is there were big differences in terms of the way they used antipsychotic medications and which psychotic antipsychotics they used across these two hospital sites and actually the ones where they had... Um, where they stayed on the control diet, more saturated fat, um, they ha- they used more antipsychotics. They were actually associated with an increased risk of heart disease and coronary artery disease associated deaths. So, so um, that's one. Uh, we we talked about the um, the the LAVA VA study, um, like the, the in the in the control group. Um, there were twice as many smokers. Um, I think you were telling me maybe there was maybe, yes. maybe there was something else as well. Yeah, I think that was a problematic thing. So I talked about this stuff with Nina Teicholz and she goes into great detail in her book, The Big Fat Surprise, about all these studies too. But yeah, that, that, uh, that, that LA veterans study 
Um, this one, the all-cause mortality is also the same between both groups. So, um, so, so basically, what what you know the what it you know what the data really shows is that um, perhaps you know there's perhaps there's a a, a a benefit, but I would argue that there are in terms of coronary artery deaths. But I would argue that there are other studies that show the opposite, right? right which weren't included. Um, but even if it does um, decrease, and these are mostly in people who've already had heart attacks. Right, so so they so a number of them are well. They're actually a mix of both secondary and primary prevention studies. But the also diet heart study was a, a secondary prevention study. Um, so so maybe they had a reduction in coronary artery associated deaths. But overall, they don't chase all cause mortality. So you're still going to die. You're just going to die of something else. Um, and you know, so overall, uh, when we think about the the number of potential downsides um, of these oils and the fact that they're just not something that we're used to seeing in large. Uh, um, amounts in the diet, and when we know there are so many other things that are going to be important for for preventing heart disease, like not smoking or movement or sunlight to improve endothelial function, you know, all that stuff. If you do all those other things, um, then I would argue you're going to get much more of a benefit, and then you're not going to get the excess poofers in your diet causing you to die of something else. So you and get a, a huge net benefit. Yeah, and, and and I think in all of these trials, if they looked at it, the cancer outcomes were greatly increased in the PUFA arms probably because of things like 4-HNE. I want to get Tucker Goodrich on the podcast, 4-Hydroxy, uh, known and all. Know. Um, you know, this is a breakdown product of linoleic acid and these polyunsaturated fatty acids. And as you talk about in some of your talks, the oxlams, which is basically the oxidative products of linoleic acid metabolism, which I believe 4-HNE is one. There's another one. 13. The hodes. The hodes. 13, yeah, yeah, the hodes. Yeah, yeah. The incorporation of 3-Hydroxy, basically... 13 hode, right? Uh, this is another ox lamb from linoleic acid, which is no bueno for humans. So I, I'm so glad that we could break those things down. I'll just say a couple more words about these trials. So this Minnesota coronary survey is one I talked about in detail with Nina Teicholz in that podcast, which actually showed a significant benefit uh, to replacing saturated fat, excuse me, to replacing PUFA, polyunsaturated fat, saturated fat with, with saturated fat. This was double blind, randomized and um, uh, controlled. They actually had equal meals. They, they looked the exact same at both of the hospitals. Uh, another problem with this Finnish study was that the control group had um, trans fats. So they had hydrogenated margarine and that was not accounted for <laughs> either. So LA veterans, twice the number of people in the control group were smokers. That could be confounding. Um, and they, they all cause mortality were the same. Uh, Oslo, we talked about these Finnish ones we talked about, and the Minnesota actually showed a benefit for saturated fat. And then, as you said, multiple studies were left out, including the Sydney Diet Heart Study. So to me, this is the type of stuff that is really insidious and quite misleading when you have to go, because who can go to that level of detail? I mean, if somebody's actually reading an RCT meta-analysis, they're, they're pretty darn sharp and they're going to the data. And to actually have to know how each of those studies were done, which is the great work that Nina Teicholz did, in the big fat surprise and, and that, that you've done to know these studies in that much detail, we say, oh, there's so much nuance here. It doesn't make any sense. And evolutionarily is what we, both you and I always come back to. It makes absolutely zero sense for saturated fat to be bad for humans. Now, that's not enough for us to say it's not bad for us, but humans have been eating saturated fats and animal foods for millions of years. And this, this idea that, that PUFAs are, are somehow beneficial for humans is just not supported by the evidence. And it's quite damaging. I think it's very dangerous for humans. 
someone else posted something online about you know epidemiology studies with linoleic acid. And I said, just take your epidemiology studies and go home. I just show you, just show me the interventional studies. So that's a meta-analysis of interventional studies. And if you look at the methodology, it's so damaging. It's just so so misleading. So that's what's so frustrating for me is that that there are people out there who just have this 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 really this narrative that they're bent on promoting and, and, and they're just, they're willing to change these things. And, and it's really not an accurate representation of the data in any way, shape or form. It's pretty, pretty scary actually. Now, while we're on the topic of fear mongering, um, anything else you want to say about PUFAs or saturated fat before we move into the last topic, which is fructose, fructose? Um, no, I think that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, obviously, we'll have to say that we both have our own personal biases, and you and I are biased in, in the same direction, yes. um, right? And and uh, but I think that if people are going to use those things to say that poofers are good, I can equally argue why that evidence doesn't stand. And you know, so so maybe we get to a point where we're like, well, maybe we don't know if poofers are, are bad or not. I personally think there's no like there's no real human food that includes a lot of them. So, you know, I, I just, it makes it much easier to, to avoid it. And then you don't have to worry about these things. I still think we just need to have the, the, like the tough mutter race between us all or like this huge MMA match or something like <laughs> you guys, like you guys go eat what you want to eat. We're going to eat what we want to eat. And we'll see you in five years for an obstacle racing, you know, and that'll just decide it. Like, I mean, that's how it would have been done three million years ago. It's like our tribe is going to go to war against your tribe, and if we're stronger and smarter and more resourceful, then we're just going to we're just going to crush you. And you know, like <laughs> we're not going to take any of your food because all your food is garbage, and you guys are just over there eating like stupid corn and soy and you know plant based garbage. But you know, we're at least going to just bonk you on the head with this and be like and shove some meat in your mouth and and talk some sense into you as we completely like break your neck because evolutionarily we're going to win. Maybe that's Maybe that's just my my Neanderthal brain coming out. I suppose I, I may have a higher percentage of those genes, but that's what I want to do. I just want to have a vegan versus omnivore versus, you know, whatever obstacle course race or, you know, let's take, I mean, what does Darius Mazafarian even look like? Who knows? I bet the, I bet he's fat. I mean, he looks like he's, he looks like he's in, in reasonably good shape. I bet he's a runner. He probably yeah. doesn't lift. Yeah. But Don't he doesn't deadlift. Yeah, he doesn't even lift. <laughs> so while we're on the topic of fear mongering, let's talk about fructose. This is going to be, uh, a teaser for future podcasts, but I did want to address it with you because you and I talked about this a lot. Now, the other thing that people will say is that that sugar causes diabetes or that carbohydrates cause diabetes. And I think it's pretty clear that in the setting of a disordered metabolism, humans aren't going to be able to deal with um, with sugars very well. But I'll just ask you, you know, your thoughts on this, and you and I have talked about this offline as well, and I talked about it in my book, uh, you know, where do you think carbohydrates come into play here and how do we make sense of all this? And then we'll, we'll talk about fructose, the fructose molecule specifically. Yeah. So I, I don't think obviously that carbohydrates cause diabetes. I think it's, it only occurs in this setting of chronic um, calorie overconsumption that we have in the, in the Western world. And, and I think poofers are going to play a role there as well, because they're going to mess with normal satiety, um, normal satiety, uh, signaling and, and function. Um, when, um, when we think about fructose, particularly, there's been some nice, uh, work. So there's a nice uh, paper written by Richard Feynman, not the physicist, the biochemist. Um, he calls himself Feynman, the other, um, 
and and basically talking about how fructose like you should just consider it largely similarly to glucose and a lot of fructose is going to get converted to glucose uh in the liver and, and and act that way and when i've when i've talked about fructose previously i um you know i've, I've, I've thought about it in the context of, of athletes and what i think is, is potentially missing from this perspective is the context in which the fructose is being consumed. So if you are an athlete and you've done some exhaustive exercise, you've depleted, you've depleted your liver of glycogen, that fructose is just going to replenish your liver glycogen. Some of it might get converted to glucose. It's unlikely to undergo de novo lipogenesis, which could potentially be problematic depending on the setting. Um, and that's fine. No problem whatsoever. Um, in other settings, so say if you are... Uh, consuming fructose in large amounts when your glute when your uh, liver is already glycogen replete so this is going to be sodas in the context of a western diet then i think it does potentially become problematic because it's going to undergo de novo lipogenesis um, potentially in the liver you're not going to be able to export that as well because you're probably going to be choline deficient as well so so chris masterjohn has actually um uh, spoken quite nicely on this, talking about how you can reverse sugar-induced fatty liver with choline uh, in animal models. And it's basically because the choline is required to package up that fat to transport it to the adipose to be stored. So um, if you're choline deficient and you are taking this in large, you know, fructose in large doses and your liver is already overstuffed full of glycogen, um, then I think it's potentially going to be problematic. You can also end up with lots of circulating fructose. So there was a there was a, a study we were talking about earlier where if you give people two cans of like regular soda, you get huge increases in circulating fructose, much above um, the circulating uh, glucose that you see, would see at the same time. And, and fructose can also cause um, can also glycate proteins, right? Like it can it can increase hemoglobin A1C. It can you know uh, damage proteins by by sort of attaching to them. Uh, but then equally, it can go to um, the, the adipocytes where it will be turned in, where it will undergo de novo lipogenesis will be turned into palmitate, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing if your whole system is working and that palmitate will then um, because in that scenario. Where, you know, if you have lots of fructose and everything else is working normally, you would expect to have relatively low insulin because uh, fructose isn't insulinogenic and relatively low glucose because you know, you know, we're not used to being these, exposed to these large carbohydrate bonuses that you can now get from processed foods. So then you, know, you might get some systemic insulin resistance because fructose is being used instead. Fine, no problem. Um, but uh, it does become problematic when you know this whole system is already stressed and you're already you know you're you're also stuffed full of insulin and stuffed full of glucose and your and your liver and your liver is full of glycogen um and you're choline deficient which is basically the western diet um so so i think for most people healthy or people diet. <laughs> um well 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 potentially but but equally those guys you know if, if they if they're running most of their metabolism on carbohydrate um, and they want, you know, they want, you know, they want to be insulin sensitive. I don't think fructose is necessarily going to be a bad thing there either. Um, well, choline deficiency is what I'm thinking. Oh, choline deficiency potentially, yeah, yeah, absolutely, um, and protein deficiency, um, right? Because because you can also do it with um, uh, with uh, methionine. So so sulfur containing amino acids can can also help this system, and you tend to only get those from from animal animal foods as well so you know methionine you get from say muscle meat much more than you will from from nuts and beans um 
So yes, that 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 so coding deficiency is is is, is potentially a problem. But th- in that setting, I think fructose may be worse than than other carbohydrates. But in general, in somebody with a healthy metabolism who is you know undergoing periods of fasting and or movement that are going to help create shifts in liver glycogen, I don't think it's a problem. And I'll just share share a couple of the studies you mentioned. So this is um, this is Richard Feynman. You know, different spelling. This is not the physicist. The other Feynman. People can read this uh, article, Fructose in Perspective, Fructose, Fructose. And basically they say, they conclude that fructose is best understood as part of carbohydrate metabolism and is not necessarily uh, toxic to humans. And this is interesting. And I think that as I dug into this more, there is some uh, illustration here of uh, fructose biochemistry, which is unique to glucose biochemistry, but not necessarily pathologic and certainly something that we would have been exposed to evolutionarily. Um, but one of the things that, that I really learned as I was digging into this stuff was that so much of the concern over fructose is coming from uh, animal data. And what's very frustrating is that this animal data shows very high rates of de novo lipogenesis. That is the conversion of sugars, in this case specifically fructose, into lipids. And that can happen at very high levels when rats and mice are overfed on fructose. But that doesn't happen in humans. There have been some great studies that are actually um, radio labeling the fructose. And I'll pull up one of those by Luke Tabby, if I can find it. And these studies will show that a very small proportion of the, um, of the fructose that is taken by a human actually ends up in uh, becoming fat or de novo lipogenesis, orders of magnitude lower than what happens in rodents. So that's, that's important. What's also shown here in his um, radio labeling studies is that like a lot of the fructose ends up as glucose. Some of it ends up as lactate. Some of, some of it ends up going into uh, glycogen storage. And then some of it ends up, a very small amount ends up as uh, de novo lipogenesis when we're doing reasonable amounts. And so what's pointed out is that if you look at the studies in humans that show damage from fructose, like almost all of them are above the 95th percentile for fructose consumption by humans in the Western world. They're they're eating massive amounts of fructose in a day, greater than 65 or 85 or even 90 grams of fructose. So within any reasonable amount of fructose, um, humans appear to be able to handle it just fine. Um, there are some really interesting, there's a series of interesting papers that were done by um, John Piper that I'll show. And these are, these are meta-analyses of controlled feeding trials using fructose in the diet for uric acid, blood pressure, and weight. And when fructose is replaced isocalorically, replaces other carbohydrates under isocaloric conditions, there are, they found from these meta-analyses of randomized controlled intervention trials, there was no harm to the fructose. So we'll start with the uric acid one. So this is the effects of fructose intake on serum uric acid among controlled trials. And they said under uric, under isocaloric conditions, they found that isocaloric exchange of fructose for other carbohydrates did not affect serum uric acid in diabetic and non-diabetic participants. Now, it's important to note that hypercaloric supplementation of controlled diets with fructose did have issues in terms of excess uric acid, but is this due to the fructose itself or is it due to excess feeding of calories? We know that hypercaloric trials in general are not a good thing. <laughs> Overfeeding humans with most things is a bad idea. As you and I have talked about previously, overfeeding humans with fat and carbohydrates is bad. You can overfeed humans with glucose 
and have a problem uh, if you have a lot of fat in the diet as well. If you have a combination of fat and you overfeed with carbohydrates, you can run into some major problems. So overfeeding of humans with calories is generally a bad thing. But what's fascinating, what you and I have talked about many times, is that from an evolutionary context, if we are eating whole foods, we are much less likely to overeat them because normal satiety mechanisms kick in uh, than we are eating a big gulp or uh, you know, a soda that is full of sugar. These are very different things evolutionarily and physiologically in terms of the amount of those things you can consume. A couple more here. This is fructose and body weight. Again, from John Sivenpiper. It's a meta-analysis of intervention trials, 31 isocaloric trials, and it says that fructose had no effect on body weight in isocaloric trials, meaning that if you replace carbohydrates calorie for calorie with fructose, there was no increase in body weight. Again, high doses in hypercaloric trials led to significant increases in weight. No surprise there. If you give people excess calories, they tend to gain weight. Um, I think that uh, neither Tommy or I believes it's quite as simple as calories in, calories out. Um, but uh, if you overfeed people, they might gain weight. And that may not be the fructose by itself. Fructose blood pressure, same kind of thing. Exactly. 13 isocaloric studies. Overall fructose intake and isocaloric exchange for other carbohydrates. It actually decreased diastolic blood pressure and mean arterial blood pressure. No effect on systolic blood pressure, meaning it did not increase systolic blood pressure. So that is yet another um, interventional trial showing that it is not a major problem. I found this one, Tommy. I imagine you've seen this paper to be pretty cool uh, from John White, challenging the fructose hypothesis, new perspectives on fructose consumption and metabolism. His conclusion is that fructose intake at normal population levels and patterns does not cause biologic, biochemical outcomes substantially different from other dietary sugars. Um, extreme experimental models that feature hyperdosing or significantly alter the usual dietary glucose to fructose ratio are not predictive of typical human outcomes or useful to public health policymakers. So this is just, again, I don't think we're advocating for the consumption of um, uh, tons of high fructose corn syrup or processed foods, but what we are saying is maybe we don't need to fear fructose in fruit. This is what I was saying earlier, that if you look at the human studies, looking at the fructose dose, um, this is the 95th percentile for intake uh, in humans, according to, uh, I guess, NHANES. And look at how many of these studies are above the 95th percentile in the percent of energy coming from fructose. Basically all of them, uh, every single one of them is above the 50th percentile. And, um, and then you can see here that in animal studies, uh, they are, every single one of them is above the 95th percentile. Most of them are giving the animals 60% of their energy from fructose. And as we noted, there are nuances in terms of rodent biochemistry versus human biochemistry in terms of how much of this uh, carbohydrate ends up going into de novo lipogenesis, which is the conversion of um, carbohydrates into fat. So this is where I think there's a bit of fear-mongering around this molecule. Uh, anything you want to add to all that? Yeah, I think it's very interesting uh, in terms of uh, like carbohydrates in general in humans. So like when people say like blanket statements, carbs make you fat, still hear that all the time, right? right. Carbohydrates. Yeah, or carbs give you diabetes. Like that's it's just not true. And so carbohydrates, in order to get to novo lipogenesis in humans from starchy carbohydrates, you have to do massive. And they've done these studies like massive overfeeding. And 
uh, of carbohydrates. And so if you like fat is low, you know, protein is consistent and you, and you just keep adding carbs. Um, what will happen is you'll just keep increasing your metabolic rate to try and burn those carbohydrates off. Um, and so when they've done feeding studies um, to try and see how much carbohydrate you need to start getting real good doses of de novo lipogenesis in humans, it's several thousand calories of carbohydrates a day. And you also have to keep adding more carbs every day to make up that that excess because because uh, otherwise you're just trying to you're just trying to burn them off so so it's it's very difficult to send carbs into de novo lipogenesis and you will do a bit but it's not if you're thinking about like fat gain most of that is fat that came from the, from the diet um and so so like that that's an important point and then um in terms of like all the all the stuff you showed on on, on fructose i think is incredibly important and in re, and in reality like the fructose or the sucrose, uh, the fructose and the sucrose in fruit, like you're never going to get, well, I mean, some people try, but getting 60% of your calories from fructose by eating fruit, you're basically at that point, you're not like, like at that point you're, you're consuming no fat, you're consuming no protein, right? There are a lot of other problems that, that are going to come from that. Um, and so, no choline. So, and no choline. So, so lots, you know, so, so super context dependent. And I, um, you know, it's the summer. I get the most of my um, calories from animal foods, meat, fish, and eggs. But I'm eating plenty of fruit, and I'm, I promise you, I'm I have no problems with with fat gain right now. Um, have you done a, a CGM? No, I have. I have the. I haven't done it. No, I should. Um, if people I are curious, I've done it, and you know, I demonstrate that my fasting glucose remains very low. I did not become insulin resistant. I eat honey in my diet every day. I'm fascinated by this. Honey is 50% fructose, 50% glucose. And people hear that are like, oh my God, it's so much. And it's, it's actually not. And um, yeah, you can see in my CGMs, which I have shared widely and I will continue to share, I'm not insulin resistant. And I've done, I've done actually a bunch of recent blood work because I've got some uh, super exciting podcasts coming up that I'm going to share. But uh, again, I'll share all that blood work. But it didn't make me insulin resistant. It doesn't make humans insulin resistant in and of itself. I'm not drinking big gulps, but you know you're not getting insulin resistant either. I, I, I imagine systemically, pathologically insulin resistant. No, I, I mean there'd be no. I guess I don't have hard data to prove that, but I have the, no evidence that that than that. You have a six pack to prove it, I suppose, and you yeah. don't have familial lipodystrophy. So. No, exactly. Yeah. I'll, I'll just share this thing, uh, this study as a as a as a point of curiosity, and then we'll wrap it up, Tommy. Um, this is in rats, so again, we have to you know think about it, but. Um, fructose in rats is probably not a great thing in general, but they substituted honey for refined carbohydrates in rats and it had a completely different effect, which I thought was totally fascinating. So compared with those fed pure fructose, honey fed rats had uh, higher plasma, this is vitamin E derivative levels, um, and lower plasma uh, NOx, which is the um, nitrate and uh, nitrate, these oxidation products and a lower susceptibility to heart to lipid peroxidation. So well, that was pretty interesting um, that even in rats, honey seemed to have a different effect than other um, pure fructose molecules. So who knows? People know I'm a fan of honey. So yeah, I think that, you know, I, you know, I guess, you know, if you come full circle um, after this two and a bit hour podcast, um, if, if you, eat foods in their natural state that are consistent with um, what our physiology expects. And that includes carbohydrates, fructose, no problem. Um, 
saturated fats, no problem. Like poofers in you know small amounts, ideally including you know uh, omega omega threes, and then like omega six is like a rachidonic acid, which you'll get you get from animals, uh, animal foods. You know, none of this is even worth worrying about because all of it sorts itself out. So, so like, so if that's the one, like, that's the one takeaway essentially that if you remove, um, the, you know, large doses of processed carbohydrates and sugars like fructose, which are physiologically, which you can definitely do if you're going to get loads of big gulps of, of 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 sugary soda, fine, you can do that. Um, it's it's definitely possible. Or you know, and you're avoiding uh, the sort of the traditionally processed and fried foods that we get in the Western diet. Um, everything else kind of sorts itself out. Um, and, and, and then we'll, you know, we'll attribute that to the fact that we removed animal products or that we re- removed carbohydrates in general. But um, actually, the reason why both of those um, approaches can work and actually result in improvements, you know, dramatic improvements in health on both ends of the spectrum is because of all the other stuff that, we, that, we, that we've talked about. Um, so it's, uh, you know, we're sort of ideologically trying to hang a reason on for one, but you know, but you, you have to be able to understand both ends of the spectrum. And I think all the stuff that we talked about today biochemically does does tie those those different um, experiences together. And I think that's the reason. I mean, we could have done this podcast, I suppose, in twenty minutes, and but but to to talk about the biochemistry, I hope it's valuable for the listeners because it's really the foundation of this. And there's so much misinformation out there that that I, I think that the biochemistry supports what we are saying and helps illustrate why it works. And that's important because we we really need to try and share the truth as much as we can. And I don't know that I don't, I don't really believe that that the misinformation is coming from people that are misguided or evil or trying to harm people. But ultimately, it's about sharing ideas. And I think that the um, the veracity of those ideas will will be uh, demonstrated over time. And and but I, I do have a lot of fear that that increasing polyunsaturated fatty acids or eating a plant-based diet is going to lead to a lot of unhealth for humans. And whether that's your progeny or my progeny or our friend's progeny or future generations or you or I or our families, like people we know will lead better or worse lives if we do a better or, you know, worse job at sharing this information. So that's why we do what we do. So anyway, thank you so much for coming on, my man. I always appreciate you're so generous with your time. Um, as I said, as I'm thinking about this podcast, I think what I may do is release our previous podcast as a prelude before this podcast comes out. So if you are listening to this podcast, you should know there is a companion podcast, which is perhaps a little bit higher level. Um, we went kind of deep in the weeds on this one, but I really am stoked because I think we covered everything I wanted to talk about. And remember that the reason we're talking about this is quality of life. Metabolic health leads to immunologic robustness, which allows us to live your life no matter what sort of insult you are faced with. And also look good, have a six pack, lift heavy weights, you know, think clearly, live, live, a, live a richer life. So, um, you know, I think let's, I think we should probably wrap it up there. We'll save it for another podcast with the socio-political economic stuff, but thank you so much for coming on. Anything you want to say before we wrap up? I think you kind of already tied it in a bow for us. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think that's it. Um, you know, we. Uh, the, I always enjoy talking to you. We we don't always agree on everything, but we always have a very, um, you know, in you know, sort of intellectually driven and 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 friendly conversation. I think that's that's the most important. That's the most important thing to to be able to do. Um, and in reality, um, like you know, we sort of come back. The things that you can do to improve this, you know, are very simple. Not everybody gets a chance to do that. 
Um, so we need to we need to change those things. But for those people who who can, um, you know, put these things into place, um, the the stuff that we've talked about basically um, helps uh, tie together why you know both keto and the the low fat plant based people you know c- can see real improvements in metabolic health, particularly you know in, in the short term. And there might be other reasons why you would prefer one over the other in the long term, but um, or neither in the long term. Um, but you know, so that that that's sort of ties together these disparate these disparate ideologies. Or carnivore ish, which it sounds like we are both pretty much eating these days. Yeah. <laughs> now, before we go, just just I know you've talked about this with me, but I would love to share with the listeners. 45 seconds on your experiences with a, with a carnivore diet and, and pros, cons, whatever. Yeah. So, so I did six weeks of, um, your, your style of a, of a carnivore diet, although probably with a higher protein intake. So maybe a hybrid between your approach and, uh, Ted Naiman's protein to energy approach. Um, and the reason like close to your approach, because I'm a major nutrient dense, loads of organs, like organs every day, um, sardines most days, um, definitely included some eggs, eggs that here and there. Um, and, but, uh, but, but a good amount of protein. I was, I was definitely eating one gram per pound of body weight, maybe a bit more, maybe 1.2, um, like 250 to 300 grams of, of, of protein a day. Um, and the only thing well, I say the only thing, the only thing that improved was my body composition dramatically improved. Um, and it's not magic. I'm not saying that plants made me fatter before. I'm saying that I went into a caloric deficit and I ate a load of protein and I trained consistently and hard and I was sleeping and all that stuff. And my body composition dramatically improved. Um, I didn't get any gut, gut issues. Um, like still pooped the, every day. Still pooped every day. Um, the, it's consistency changed slightly and it definitely got darker because I was eating a lot more iron than I was before. Uh, but certainly no like diarrhea or anything like that. I slept fine. Cognitive clarity was fine. Tra- you know, I was still doing sprints and high volume squats and all that stuff in the gym. No problem with my performance. Um, and then I, then I started, I mean, then after six weeks, uh, I probably dropped six or 7% body fat down from maybe 17, 18 down to 13, 14. Um, and then I added back some, some plant foods, um, just and and some and some dairy some low fat dairy um and you know just because i believe that the human should be a robust animal that that can uh adapt and uh take energy from a wide variety of foods i think that's how we we should be able to function i appreciate that not everybody can for various reasons and that's fine uh but that's just my sort of one of my core beliefs that we should be able to and so so then having a varied diet is important to me for that reason um and then but sort of i've sort of i've continued that downward trend so i'm definitely eating still eating a lot more protein from animal foods than i did before uh lockdown um still you know so still a, a heavy uh, animal food focus uh still a, a, a good protein focus so still a good amount of protein and my body composition has continued to improve as has my performance in the gym um but you know, so my carbohydrate on any given day may range from 10 grams to 150 grams. It it really depends on what I'm eating that day, and and I, and I see no changes in sleep or or cognition or anything either side for performance. Yeah, pretty cool, pretty cool. Well, when you told me about your carnivore experience, I was like, that's awesome that you didn't have a decline in your, you know, you didn't have a decline in your gym performance. Your body composition got better. You still pooped. You don't need fiber to poop. Uh, your sleep was good. I had lots of anim- I had lots of animal fiber. 
right? So I made <laughs> right? sure to do that. So like sardines, skin, bones. Col- so I um, so most of my uh, just just for ease of use, most of my calories came from ground beef with organs, and then I would I would add uh, ground elk or more ground like regular ground beef or you know. So it was mainly just because I could cook it in a big batch and then eat it. Uh, but when I, when I did that, so for every three or four pounds of um, ground meat that I cook up, I'd add like a half cup of of some kind of collagen powder. Um, so I made sure I got loads of that in there. Where were you getting the the organ grind from? Were you using stuff from Force of Nature or White Oak or? Um, so I got some from Nose to Tail uh brian sanders company but most of it comes from u.s wellness meats they cool. do a, a 75 percent lean it's like more than 50 percent heart and and liver um cool so that's good for people to know there are lots of resources now for these kind of things Belcampo, white oak pastures force of nature is making these organ grinds brian sanders has nose to tail u.s wellness um as well the the first five four that i mentioned i know are our domestic sourcing and uh, U.S. wellness will source some from Australia, but it's all pretty darn good. So, oh, so some of the some of the some of the Cape Green beef comes from I think New Zealand, uh, but I think most of their regular beef is from is from U.S. farms. The I U.S. Believe, wellness. I, I, yeah, U.S. wellness. Um, and uh, if so, they I will say like how I eat a lot of steak, and and ribeye is absolutely my favorite, and U.S. wellness do a ribeye primal, like a whole ribeye that you can like slice down into steaks. It's the, it's the best ribeye I can find. It's a <laughs> mate. Like I, and I have no connection to them as a company other than the fact that I send them a lot of my money, no affiliation, um, no affiliation other than I eat a lot of their meat. Um, and my dogs eat a lot of their meat. So they do. So my dogs are also raw carnivore, um, which is hugely beneficial for their health as well. And they do a pet burger that includes uh, ground beef and also ground organs and then ground chicken backs for animal fiber. Um, so I, I make them my own mix out of those things. Uh, and they, they, you, can, you can save a lot of money if you buy in bulk. So I often get like 150 pounds of meat delivered from US Wellness Meats. So way to do that. And I know you've, uh, I've met Tommy's dogs. They're amazing. And they are some of the luckiest dogs on the planet because they have <laughs> you and they eat amazingly well. So that's awesome. But cool. Well, thanks for those resources. So Tommy, where can people find more of your stuff if they want to engage with you or interact with you or read more of your stuff? I know you're sort of, sort of on the down low because he's got real life and he's doing real research, but where can people connect with you if they want to find your stuff? Yeah. The main place is uh, probably Instagram. Uh, at Dr. Tommy Word on Instagram, I will post uh, pictures or I'll post things about lifting, things about my dogs, and things about science. Um, usually, um, or like podcasts I've done, I'll, I'll post on there. Um, usually, a lot of the science I post are papers that myself have published. So, so sometimes people will find them relevant. Sometimes it's going to be about rat models of neonatal brain injury, which you might not find interesting, but you can sort of see my progression in the scientific world um, if you're interested. And you recently did a talk at IHMC, which is on YouTube, which is really excellent that I listened to. I'd recommend people check that out as well. Um, yeah. So follow Tommy on Instagram, send him a DM and say, hi, uh, this is the fourth podcast that Tommy and I have done. Just so you know, the first one was uh, a while ago. The second one was on April E4. If people have questions about April E4, the third and this one, this is the third and fourth will probably be released as a pair and are on insulin resistance as we've been talking about today. So, all right, my man, what is the most radical thing you've done recently? Most radical thing I've done recently is uh, a carnival diet. <laughs> all right. 
And it wasn't so bad. It, was actually, it wasn't so bad. It was actually pretty reasonable. That's awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on, man. I so appreciate you. And I can't wait for our future conversations. Yeah, likewise. All right, you guys. Thank you so much for listening to that podcast with Tommy Wood. If your brain is not blown, then I, uh, you should listen to it again because it will be. This is one of those for sure brain blain, brain blowing podcasts. And I appreciate Tommy spending this time with me. It is such an interesting road that we are on right now. I just think a lot of ideas are pointing in the same direction. We have this pandemic, coronavirus. It is clearly affecting our population greatly. It is incredibly tragic. And those who are metabolically unhealthy are suffering in the greatest fashion. So what do we do? We should be focusing on how to make our population healthy. We should be asking the questions, what makes us healthy and diseased, which is what's so fascinating to me. That's why I wrote the book. That's why I do these podcasts. That's why I love interacting with you all, trying to help us all understand what the heck is making us unhealthy and how do we become more healthy. And I think that as Tommy and I really talk about in this podcast, one of the main, if not the main issue for the most people is this evolutionarily inconsistent amount of linoleic acid in the human diet, mostly from vegetable oils, but also from corn and soy fed chicken and pork. This is a real problem. And it appears to lead to insulin resistance via the molecular mechanisms that we discuss in this podcast involving the mitochondria. So how do you fix it? Don't eat processed food. Don't eat vegetable oil. Know where your food is coming from. Know your enemy. And don't fear fructose. I just see in mainstream, not mainstream, but in and really, in the health space right now, there's, it's getting divided, and I don't think this is helpful for us. There's people who are saying carbs are the enemy, and I'm really saying, hey, I don't think carbs are the enemy. You don't want to overconsume them. You don't want to make them the majority of your diet because then you won't have enough room from a caloric perspective to get nutrient-rich food, but that's not what's causing diabetes. That's not what's causing insulin resistance. The quality of your food matters. Grass-fed, grass-finishing, regenerative agriculture matters, and linoleic acid matters in the human diet from a molecular level. It just does. And this is where we should focus our efforts. And if you need to reincorporate carbohydrates back in your diet or you choose to, like I have, and you feel better, that's totally fine. I've showed repeatedly in both my blood work and my CGM, it doesn't make you insulin resistant. You don't gain weight. The insulin resistance is underlying, and it's from that molecular mechanism at the level of the mitochondria triggered by these evolutionarily inconsistent levels of linoleic acid. I think it's pretty striking. So that's the problem. And what that means is that for the last 70 years, our doctors have been giving us bad advice. We need to retrain the physicians. So why are we doing this? We're doing this because there are people suffering. And when people are suffering, they need information. I'm not trying to convince everyone in the world to stop eating plants forever. I think it's important that we understand, number one, that animal foods are incredibly valuable for humans and have been incorrectly vilified for tens, really for decades now. Number two, plants exist on a toxicity spectrum. And there are a lot of people who continue to suffer because they don't have any information that tells them otherwise. They think that plants are all good for them. They're entirely benevolent. They should just eat more plants. That the reason they're not doing good is because they're not eating enough plants. And I've seen it over and over, autoimmunity, inflammation, GI issues, psychiatric issues get better in some people when they eliminate or cut down on the most toxic plants. This is what I talk about in my book. This is what I think is so critical for us to know. And this is why I do the work that I do to help people understand that there are other ways of thinking about this paradigm. Also, getting organ meats in your diet is crucial, and getting those nutrients is something that many of us are deficient in. Now, if you got my newsletter today, you know the secret. If you are listening to the end of this podcast, you know the secret. 
but I'm going to let you in on the secret in case you don't know it. This is the week that I am launching my supplement company, which is called Heart and Soil. You can check us out, heartandsoilsupplements.com. And I have worked so hard with an amazing team to develop these grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised, desiccated organ meats in capsules. And this is, I think, going to be a great way to get people this nutrition when they can't eat the organ meats. So if you want to eat the organ meats, do that. If you're traveling, you can't access them or you don't like the taste, check out our supplements, you guys. I think you will really like them. Heartandsoilsupplements.com. You can order them on the website. We're getting the Amazon stuff figured out. It should be up this week, but you can order directly from us. I will sign the letter myself. I will put it in a package and I will send you these supplements. They are amazing. We've been sharing them amongst our friends here in Austin. Everyone loves them, but they are the highest quality we could possibly make. I would never offer anything else to you all who I really care about. So check out heartandsoilsupplements.com. I will be announcing this much more widely in the next week or so. So check us out before we sell out and uh, try some bone marrow and liver or beef organs. We've got other supplements coming soon. But this is, again, a huge thing that I think will make such a big difference in the lives of so many by getting them this amazing nutrition. So there you go. I told you I would talk about amazing stuff in these outros. I didn't even talk about it in the intro, just the outro. So if you're listening to the outro, you heard the secret. If you're listening, if you got my newsletter today, you heard the secret. Heart and Soil is live is alive. And we are so excited to bring this nutrition to you all. So thanks for listening. Things are amazing with me in Austin. Got my book coming out next week. I'm going to be steak dancing all through this week. And I hope you like this podcast. Leave me a review. Check out my sponsors, White Oak Pastures, Blue Blocks, NutriSense, Force of Nature, thecarnivorecodebook.com. Stay radical, you guys. I love you. 